Hi, and welcome to Sweetman Podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Sweetman. I'm your host. This week, um, I talked to a guy based in Wellington called Alan Stewart. Now, you might not know that name. Alan's um, Alan's a guy who, he has been a musician and uh, has played in, in a, as a working musician, but that's not really how I got to know him. I got, I got to know him as a, a customer in one of the music stores I worked in, and then uh, after a break of a few years, I got to know him again as a as a as a Facebook friend. Um, what was interesting to me about talking to Alan was he grew up in England and uh, moved out to New Zealand, you know, quite a few years ago now. But he lived in in England through the 60s, and he saw the Beatles, and he saw the Rolling Stones, he saw Fleetwood Mac when they were a blues band more than once, and he says by his by his count, he saw the Who a dozen times, including when they were the high numbers. So. And he saw Jimi Hendrix, so it was. I was kind of in heaven talking to him about all these musical passions of mine that were so important to me when I was growing up, so important to so many people. Um, it's a pretty wide-ranging and roving conversation this one, because because I, I like Alan, I like what he's about. He's um, he's a sharp cultural critic. He's got strong opinions. He's a good writer. Uh, he's got a blog called Wise Blood that is worth following. Um, and uh, you know, we—I think—we probably tried to just sit down and have a conversation and make sense of his world and make sense of the world, and and those are fun conversations to get involved in. Um, certainly, when you're talking with someone of his caliber as a conversationist. So, um, I had my work cut out for me, but I did my best. This is me chatting with uh, with a good friend of mine, Alan Stewart. What are you? You're a, you're a blogger. Well, I describe a, myself yeah. as an occasional musician, writer, and critic. Yeah, absolutely. So. And so, where did those have those components always been there? Those those things were they always happening when you were doing your nine to five job or whatever was similar yeah. to a you know? Where yeah, did well, they I where mean, do they come into your life? Those things. Where? Yeah. Like how? Well, they start off. In South London, as a as a child. So yeah, well, let's go there. Um, my father was a very talented, um, what would you say? You know, casual musician. Mm. But he was one of these working musician. No, no, dad. Not even dad. No, no. He, but well, I mean, they say all the best musicians are at home, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's true, but he was certainly in that bracket. But I mean, we had a piano yeah. at home and other musical instruments, and. It, it, you know what I'm going to say, because you know people like this. He's one of those really annoying bastards who could play anything. Right. I just find people like that so <laughs> annoying. So family sing-songs? Was he the leader? or? Yeah, yeah, he'd get around the there. piano yeah. and yeah. he'd play Fats Waller. Yep. Uh, and uh, Cole Porter and yeah. George Gershwin and uh, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely was a big favourite of Dad's. And um, but in the house we um, listen to everything. Yeah. Uh, except and rock and roll. Right. Well, as this is right around the time of rock and roll. I yeah. take it. Like, and then the and, yeah. and you've probably got memories from um, before anyone was calling it rock and roll. You've probably got musical memories of the well, the, yeah. the very early fifties. Yeah. Um, we yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, we can't. It's sort of like a history lesson. But yeah. Specifically, we had Lewis Jordan. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's yeah, that that's it. Stride, mm. uh, boogie, sort woogie, of boogie, woogie crossover. Jump, jump blues. Jump yeah. stuff. But um, play it to someone now and um, that had no 
knowledge of, of that or where it fit in, and they would probably assume that the large portion of someone like him it was just rock and roll. Yeah. Because it sort of precedes it. But there are more pieces in the yes. band. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got like full br- brass charts. Yeah, an orchestra. And, yeah. Yeah. So um, we had all that, and I was taught, uh, Dad taught me to. Tried to teach me to play the piano and the guitar. Mm. Eventually, I ended up going down to the local guitar shop for lessons because mm. um, he gave up on me, mm. and I wasn't very good, but I could sing. And he, um, Dad, was had wonderful, um, what the Germans call a held Helden tenor, yeah, uh, light heroic tenor voice. Really, he had lovely uh, pitch and, mm. and mm. good control, mm. and um, so I, I got some of that. Mm. Uh, and I could play a bit. I mean, I could play the, the basic six chords, which enabled me to play a rhythm guitar in a band for a while, until mm. they found out I was really, really <laughs> no good at all. You didn't know the seventh. <laughs> well, the, I had the two dreadful uh, things that happened. First of all, they found out that I wasn't a very good guitarist, and then they also found out that I could sing a lot better than the lead singer. The, the actual singer, but, yeah. but he, was, he owned the band. Right. So I got my marching orders. Um, yeah. So this is what in the sixties, early sixties. So before yeah. the actual sixties, which we've talked about, but right around the time of what it was all starting to to happen. I left school in about sixty four. Yeah, yeah, with some good qualifications and yeah, set about doing it, and then got involved. Um, well, it was mods and rockers at the time, Simon. Yeah, and I was quite, I mean I was never going to be a rocker, mm. um, I liked clothes far too much and um, posing around on a Vesta or a Lambretta or something and yeah. um, so I got involved with that scene and I made friends with some other lads where I was working who were a little bit older than me yeah. and a bit more knowledgeable and stuff. Uh, so here's, here's a like a seminal moment, one of these mates said to me, uh, there was a place called Keith Prouse, uh, which was a ticket agency and a record shop just down in Cornhill mm. in the city where we used to go. And he said, go down there uh, and they've got uh, some stuff just in from Sun and some other stuff. And there's a guy called Howling Wolf who's, uh, uh, y- you should listen to. Yeah. So, I, I, oh, right, okay. Very anxious to please. I zoomed off down to Keith Prowse at lunchtime went, and then we had listening booths in those days. Yeah, yeah. Where people used to pr- shoot up and screw and do all sorts of things. Um, anyway, I wasn't, I just went there and said, could you get the Howling Wolf out? And, and I listened to uh, his version of Going Down Slow. Massive moment in time for me. Yeah. Never heard anything like it. Yeah. Never heard anything like it. You know, because most of the music that we were listening to, um, in the most obvious sense, was commercial. I was going to say it would have been safe. Commercial. So it wouldn't have had... Commercial music. So no danger about it at all. And all of a sudden you've got this guy with this excoriating voice which was stripping the paint off the wall. Yeah. And Hubert Sumlin's guitar, which was like shredding everything in a 50 metre radius. Telling you this intimate story yeah. about this old boy on his deathbed, yeah. you know, which isn't full of laughs, but it sort of is. It's wry, 
But what's um, amazing to me is your description there of that. I can place that um, in my head, and I know that if we put that song on now, it would still have that impact. Not just that impact on you because you're channeling nostalgia, but it still mm. sounds like that. You, Nothing's you, replaced it in terms of its visceral exactly. sound. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly correct because, well, I mean, I, I mean you could go to the town hall and, and hopefully listen to a good reading of Beethoven's Five, and the, mm. and the minute you hear that coda, you, mm. you should get the friss on, should you not? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't that happen? Well, you put the wolf on, and he says, you know, he talks to you. Yeah. And you hear that single piano note. Yeah. Ding, 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 you know. And, wow, if you don't get the friss on, there's something wrong. Yeah. You shouldn't be listening to music. So you, know. you, you were inspired by, directly by, this blues music, and you were living in... England at a time mm -hmm. when what we know of now, what history tells us, was the British blues boom. Yes. You you lived in that yes. through that. It directly affected you and influenced you. Yeah. Um, did you? What did you feel about some of the music that I guess you, but also like these bands that, and we'll name them, but that have gone on to be household names? Mm. And I know from talking to you before. You, you've seen you saw many of these bands that that are you know most people consider some of the most important names in rock and roll or music yeah. pop music you saw them when they were sort of just past woodshedding um did they did they do a good job of representing and recreating the blues can you look back at it now and go or was it always something else was it not about that was it always i think that's a really good question uh I'm glad you spotted a question in there somewhere. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I was yeah, trying because I mean, obviously, I mean, I, we, I mean, I knew you were coming here today, mm. and, and and I didn't want to get too into trying to imagine what you might ask me. But I mean, mm, same. Obviously, it, it, yeah, you know, some some issues around that because I, it's pretty obvious you were going to be interested in the '60s stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'll answer your question, but I think the first thing I'm going to say is. I think too much is claimed by my generation yes. around being prescient mm -hmm. about what it was we were witnessing. Okay? Mm. I think mm. far too much is claimed. Mm. Um, so the answer to your question is, I think we could tell shit from Shinola, okay, a lot of us. Mm. We were musical mm. uh, and we understood performance uh, and, and whether or not anyone was any good, or as we would say, is he much chop, mm. uh, you know, and I definitely formed views about who I thought was okay and who I thought wasn't. And yeah. as you know, I'm, I still carry those prejudices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to this day. Which is great. Um, so um, I'd have to say that I thought probably the band I saw the most often was The Who yeah. in one guise or another because I first saw them when they were called The High Numbers. Right, I was just going to ask that. So you saw them three, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, I when can you say you saw the most how, numbers, what, what yeah, well, I probably saw the Who play on maybe ten or a dozen occasions. Wow! Yeah, I mean, it's easy to overestimate. Sure, I, I think that would be probably about right because yeah. over the course of say a couple of years, that, mm, would, mm. that would be quite a number of times. Mm. And what I would have seen obviously went from watching them in a in a, a pub like the Berlin Wolfenstock, which is where mm. I first, I think that's where I first saw them. Mm. 
um, to, s- to seeing them on stage doing, you know, a, the, sh- a, a the much, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The shtick yeah. changed significantly. It had become, it had become the yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. So when you, a band like that, or say the very early Who, maybe mm. the first time you saw them like before they're called the Who, mm. what sort of numbers are you talking, uh, would, can you remember would be, in, what sort of, how many people would be in a club watching them? A hundred? Um, in the bell that have been 60 or 70 people. Wow, yeah. Only. And there'd have been a few, um, I think it was a summer's evening, so, you know, there'd have been a few people outside and mm. d- drifting around and people drifting in and out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'll tell you who was there that night because I, I asked who they were. Mm. It was um, uh, Chris Stamp um, oh, yeah. and Kit Lambert. Yeah, wow. They were wow. there. Because I sort of said, you know, um, well, were they just, when you say you asked who they were, were they just, did they stick out? Were they just dressed a little better than... Well, Chris Stamp looked a bit like his brother, a very yeah. handsome fellow, yeah. but not as classically handsome as, yeah. as, as his brother. So, um, but they were just guys that looked like they were on the make. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so... so there's um, a story here, these guys are... Uh, <laughs> yeah. These blokes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and they don't get talked about much, I suppose, but I sort of think... You know, you're talking about the prime shakers and movers from that period. These guys managed the Who and they managed Jimi Hendrix. Mm, mm. And they formed track records. Mm. For Christ's sake. I mean, that that's a massive contribution. Well, I, didn't, I didn't see it, but there was that doco that came out this year at the festival about them. So yeah. I guess that's well, that addressing pe- some of what you're talking about. Up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a long time. It's a long time. To and they were there. chalk and cheese. Yeah, right. Um, Stamp was core blimey. Um, and Lambert was public school educated. Yeah. But they were a good fit. Mm. And people they managed prospered. Mm, mm. They, did, they did okay. Who else did you see around that time? That you t- I, I think the last time I came and visited you, mm. you told me that you'd seen Fleetwood Mac. The Mac um, were, were probably... Um, a bunch of times. Yeah. We, um, well, and Chicken Shack and... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Steam Packet. Yeah, right. Um, and all of those, see if you went to the Ealing Blues Club, mm. which is really where, uh, and Il Piana, which is down by Twickenham, mm. um, a lot of those people, because there was a lot of cross-pollination going on, right? Mm-hmm. So you had to look at Alexis Corner, Graham Bond, and, and um, uh, Long John Baldry, and those mm-hmm. sorts of people, they, they were all in each other's Rod Stewart. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, they were... Jeff Beck, they were yeah. all sort of in and out of each other's uh, living rooms and, yeah, yeah. and, and j- forming different alliances. John Mayle yeah. um, and so on. Um, Alexis Corner was, I think, really, really influential, uh, as was John Mayle, because it was really who played for them. Yeah. I was going to say, these guys are like um, yeah. tastemakers in a sense, though, yeah. you know. But Pete Green was always his own man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish Simon, I'm serious, serious. I mean, I, I, I wish I could truly teleport you <laughs> to a pub where the Mac were playing and you would say, I know you would, mm. this is the best British blues band I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, some of the, some of the uh, pretty scratchy bootleg recordings I've heard of them mostly actually when they went over a couple of years later to America still make me think that about them so I'm sure I would 
I'm sure I'd think that if, <laughs> if, if, if we could go there. Is just, I mean, I don't want to get horribly technical, but you know, that thing that they call rubato. Yep. It's the little pauses. And, I mean, Green's playing exemplifies, and the grace notes are always mm. wonderfully appropriate. It's, mm-hmm. it's never showy. There's no fake and roll. It's everything is exactly as it should be. Mm, mm. It was peerless, I think. Yeah, I've I've talked to some people. Um, I know there are people. You know, obviously there are people that don't think he he matters terribly much and think that he was just another white guy trying to sound, yeah. you know, and all of that. But but I'm sort of in your camp with this. I think that there's something about his um, his feel and his touch mm. on on the guitar, particularly in those first. You know, I think he sort of reclaimed as much as he could of it later on, but certainly in those uh, John Mayall years and those first Fleetwood Mac years, there's something about it that, to me, um, the only guy that was doing something as good as that, and, and but in a completely different way, was Jeff Beck. I think so. I mean, I've never really... It, that's interesting what you've said, because I hadn't really paused ever to make a distinction between how we, you know, as listeners, how we distinguish between tone and technique. Mm. And I think maybe his critics, um, I'm trying to create a really good analogy. You know, the man is Muddy Waters, eh? Yeah. Right? You know. Yeah. Right? And why? Not just because he was a great singer-songwriter and he was incredibly generous and who he had up on the stage with him mm. and the careers mm. that he developed. But that tone, mm. you listen to those um, stole plantation recordings that Lomax did, mm, mm. and there's, it's it's like a bellbird has got inside the, the Rosetta. Yeah, you know, that's what distinguishes him, and just the strength and the cleanness and all of that stuff. But he creates a ringing quality. Well, to, and sorry, and green. Mm. I was just going to say on Muddy Waters, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing to reference, but that one of the sort of movies of my lifetime is that is that cheesy film from the eighties, Crossroads. Yeah, yeah. That, you know that in part. I saw you writing about. Yeah, that. yeah, that in part. And so I always come back to that film, and there's a line in that film I remember where he's he's looking at buying a little portable pig nose amp and and yeah. in, in, in a pawn shop, and and the guy behind the counter says, um, <clears throat> says something like. Muddy Waters invented electricity, mm-hmm. and I like that. You know, it, it, it's that sort of instantly spoke to me. I, mean, I don't think I'd heard that much of Muddy Waters music at the time, but I did know who he was. I'm talking when I was sort of 12, 13. Yeah. I knew who he was. My mum had some recordings, but I went back to them, and I sort of the silly line in this film kind of stuck with me because it's like he wasn't the first electric guitarist, but I get what this guy means by going Muddy Waters invented electricity. You well, know, there's something about how it comes alive. But, for him and through him. But you can, I mean, also what he's saying is a, is a, is a sort of broad metaphor for saying, uh, and I don't think this can be disputed, he yeah. electrified the blues. That's it, that's exactly it. And took it round the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, other people, Chuck Berry, yeah. Howling Wolf, Junior mm. Wells, those sorts of players mm. were involved. But Muddy was the man. Mm. Uh, and And... We, we don't have the stuff we listen to without him. Mm. So you mentioned Chuck Berry then. Yeah. So yeah, I think that Muddy and Chuck are probably the two most... 
years ago I went for an interview with, um, for a job with, um, I think they called themselves the Chamber Music Society of New Zealand. Mm. So they wanted a sort of general factotum and stuff, uh, which I was quite well qualified for. I mean, I mean, I know, you know, but the woman um, who sort of looked like that woman that was in Rising Damp, um, Francis de Latour, yeah. um, was interviewing me. <laughs> said, "Who do you think are the most important musicians of the 20th century?" And I said, "Oh, Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry." <laughs> 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 I didn't get the job signed. No. Um, yeah, so sorry. It's a good yeah. answer, but it's not the right answer for the Chuck Chuck Berry. Uh, in the in in the, the my early experiences with um, jamming with people and, and trying to get into bands and stuff, and uh, everyone played Chuck Berry. There wasn't a band I could tell you about that didn't have at least two or three Chuck Berry songs in their set. Mm. Everybody wanted to play Chuck Berry, and ev all of those budding guitarists were learning how to double string mm. and get that Chuck Berry sound. Was it? It's funny for me um, with Chuck Berry now, and I think I kind of at first wrote him off. You know, coming to him at my age, you know, when he's long past being a thing, but he's still obviously a, a formative influence. Like, you know, you read guitar magazines, and every guitarist mm. is mentioning when they heard him and what, what he did for them but the thing I love about Chuck now is actually so much of the um, wit and um, and sort of sneakiness in the lyrics yeah. and, and the, hu the humour the, the sex the double entendre you know the all of that the lyric so were you picking up on that at the time was that can you imagine the way I felt couldn't unfasten my safety belt. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to, you know? So yeah. But you, you were aware of that, like you weren't. You when you're listening to it, when it's sort of there at the time, you're not just going, oh, this is a guitar, this is guitar-based music. Like the lyrics. Yeah, no. Mean we, something to you? We knew about. Chuck. Yeah, yeah. And we knew he was a bad man. Yeah, yeah. Like we knew Jerry. Like Jerry Lee Lewis. Lee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew they were bad men. And man. Johnny Cash a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. Chuck was a very bad man. Yeah. And everyone. Knew that we. I went to Part of the appeal, see him. Wasn't it? Um, I went to see Chuck Berry at the Fairfields Hall in Croydon in the winter of '64 '65. Mm. Um, he was amazing. He was amazing. But you get a lot of clues about Chuck Berry from watching How How Rock and Roll. You know when Keith mm. Richard went over to. Yeah. Yeah the sort of musical director for it was yeah. his 60th birthday wasn't it yeah that's right and and keith says in an aside to the camera i wanted to do this because chuck's never had a proper musical director he's always had crap mm. musical <laughs> direction uh so that's true too mm. Mm. you know um and the stories that are told um I think were probably quite true about him turning up uh, with a suitcase and saying, I'm not interested in a check or a transfer or put the money in here. So yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll go and put it in the boot of my car, you know. And he'd walk out on stage and wouldn't have sent anyone a set list or anything. So I got a, a fantastic experience of uh, we booked, we used to book for both houses. 
uh, when a major artist was in town. So we'd do the matinee, yeah, and then we 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 do the seven thirty. Right. Uh, always did that whenever we could. Yeah. Uh, and at the matinee uh, in in Croydon, uh, and in those days, the, and you've probably seen the posters. The bill was a yard long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you opened, as and, and, and Springsteen talks about that on. Uh, how how rock and roll? Mm. He said, that, you know, we were approached by the promoter to open and, and then back. Mm. Chuck Berry, yeah. So and there was a band called Jimmy Powell and the Five Dimensions. Uh, it was Rod Stewart, right? Was associated with for a while. They opened, and then there was a couple of minor uh, sort of things, mm. uh, and then the Moody Blues had just released Go Now, mm. uh, and before them was the Graham Bond organisation. Yep. Now you know, mm. now, the lineup is extraordinary. You've got Bond on keys and, and vocals. Ginger. Ginger Baker on, on yep. drums. Jack Bruce yep. on bass. John McLaughlin wow. on leads. Yeah. And Dick Hestel Smith on, yep. on sax. Um, and do you know who these guys are at this time, or do you find out about them after? Like, do you no, see we knew them? they were on the scene. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, mean, I know they're on the scene, but you, yeah, yeah. you were on the scene, so you. Yeah, 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 yeah we yeah. knew who the. Yeah, yeah we we knew. Um, yeah. But I think they were on third or something yeah, like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Then the movie blues came because they, unfortunately, just released. Now. Yeah. Um, and we didn't like it then. I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to be smart. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, didn't, yeah. We didn't think much I of the movie. See, yeah, yeah, I can see how that would be. We didn't like them much. Yeah. And then the second half was uh, John Baldry and the Hoochie Coochie Men. Yeah. And then Chuck. Now, what happened was Chuck comes out and does a perfunctory nod. You, you know how this goes. He's worse than Dylan. Yeah, right. right. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. Dylan does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck says even less. Yeah. Plugs in. And then you've got the dimensions, minus Jimmy Powell, who's the vocalist. And yeah. So you've got like the four dimensions standing behind him. And Chuck goes off into something like Nadine. Yeah. This is, um, this is uh, something you n I'll never forget. So there are, you know, 18 bars into Nadine. And Chuck's looking very upset and not at all happy. And he's looking at the bass player. And he's looking at the others and he's, you know, waving his arms around and he's sort of mouthing off and saying something or the other. Yeah. And I was looking at the bass player and I thought, this guy doesn't look happy. Well, he just couldn't do it. And, you know, in uh, How, How Rock and Roll, Springsteen says that he never got in touch with them. And on the night, they played, you know, they opened and then... Uh, uh, they had the half-time break and then the curtain went up on the second half and they were all stood there, the E Street Band. Yeah. And uh, eventually Chuck wanders out and uh, Springsteen introduces himself. I'm Brent Spring. This is my band, the E Street Band. What are we going to be playing tonight, Mr. Berry? And apparently Chuck just looked at him and said, Why? Chuck Berry music, fool. <laughs> And this is sort of like what happened. Yeah. And this guy on bass was, I don't know, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. But yeah. from stage right, Jack Bruce emerges, takes the guy's bass 
off of him yeah. on the strap yeah. and picks up the beat. And Chuck turns so around. So he sees that this guy's not coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Just Place went. Yeah. Place went. Just crazy. Wow. People were, you know, Jack saves the day. Wow. So he wasn't such a curmudgeon, the old bastard after yeah. all. You know. Yeah. So were you still actively going to gigs and when that sort of, that I guess, the second tier arrives? Things like Cream? Bands like Cream, mm. um, the Beatles. Yeah, um, I was. Well, the Beatles is obviously a lot earlier than Cream. That's around the time we're talking, but you know, like, yeah, I guess Beatles-inspired bands and. and I so only forth. ever saw the Beatles once right. live. Um, In the cabin. No, no, no it was, they were touring, and someone like Roy Orbison. Right. And we went down to the coast, the Essex coast. It might have been Southend or somewhere like that. Mm. Saw them there. I couldn't hear a damn thing. No, it would have just been hysteria. I think there were about 20 blokes in the audience. Mm. Well, I'm distinct memory. <laughs> and it was just. And all those stories about the cleaners having to come out and, and disinfect the place were exactly correct. Wow. So, everyone so what? This is them trying to. Well, they probably are playing things like, I want to hold your hand and. I couldn't you tell don't you. Know. Yeah. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Seriously, I, I had no but idea what was going. There was a noise, because in those days, but what Simon they, too, they didn't have massive stacks. No, yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't. That's they were right. Quite, you know, yeah, yeah. like a little box. So box what was? Yeah. But what had they done? What had they released? So the please please me was out. Oh, I think they'd they had. I want to hold your hand. Please please me and yeah. love me do and. So first album though, but are they is the yeah, second one out? Was it with the Beatles? Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. 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 Um, and it was all covers, or yeah, mostly yeah. covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, oh yeah, wait yeah. a minute, Mr. Post. That's yeah, yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, wow. And, so they, and they did a lot of... Um, and so that was sort of quite interesting because... I mean, I'm going to... So what, they're opening for Roy? And he's opening for them? They opened for him. Yeah, yeah. American stars that came to Britain tended to, to be headliners, yeah, yeah, yeah. irrespective of the success. Yes. Uh, myself and a, a, a mate, we went, we didn't go to every gig, but we, we went to about a half a dozen gigs on the animals when they toured Britain, and they mm. never ever closed, mm. and yet they were one of the biggest yeah, yeah. attractions yeah. going around, but yeah. uh, I think it might have been someone like Jim Pitt here. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got this amazing band wow. with this highly charismatic vocalist. Yeah, I mean, I still think that Eric Burden and Van Morrison are two of the most extraordinary yeah. musicians that you'll ever see live. You've never seen such well-placed confidence from little these two little men that just. Did you see Van with them? No, no, no that's no. Van was was later. Yeah, and I only ever saw him once too, mm. unfortunately. What era was that? Uh, the 70s. Yeah. Um, the big show. I was trying to think, um, yeah. It's had too the, late the, to the, stop now. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, you had the big show band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Going on. Um, I mean, probably too much self-confidence, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, you, if you watch the last waltz, yeah. and you think about who's on stage, mm. Van walks out. Mm. Who owns the stage? Mm. 
It's yeah. like, oh, well, I don't care about even in that fucking Robbie Roberts. <laughs> even in that fucking jumpsuit, <laughs> too. You know, who are they? Yeah. I'm that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you get all of that. Yeah. Don't you? And you just were so self-assured. Yeah. And, as I say, it might have been a little bit more than was necessary, but was well-placed. I mean, he's an extraordinary musician. Oh, at his best, he's, yeah, yeah. pretty hard to beat. So, know, yeah. So, um, what's going on with your own playing at this point? Are you um, actually playing gigs, or are you... No, no, not, no. Just well, that's quite hard in terms of what sort of happened to me physically. Mm. Um, not, I mean, not that No, I'm, I mean at this time when you're... Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah no, 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 I, don't mean, I don't mean right now. No, no. No, I mean, oh, no, not really. I mean, I was, I was, I was working in, in, in quite an intense... Uh, environment, um, trying to earn money mm. uh, to buy all to the, pay for to buy all the stuff to buy all the drugs and the and the gig tickets. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was the sixties, and yeah. um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to deepen the cliche, but most of what people said was happening certainly was happening, and um, well, maybe not in New Zealand, but where you were, I think. Well, in London. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing and, about and in, in, in London and San Francisco and you know those key points. Um, well, San Francisco came a little bit later. Later, yeah, yeah, yeah. and in a sense, it sort of succeeded. Yes, you know, because we're talking about Fleetwood Mac, and I've mm. got a point of view which you won't share. Um, but to me, there's only one Fleetwood Mac. But I do understand how California um, and the Californian influence sort of superseded to mm. a very large extent in bands like Grateful Dead and the Mac and mm. everything else that came off the West Coast. Mm. And, it, and it is uh, an important, but it was later um, and it fueled a quite different feeling. Um, I, was, I was at the Isle of Wight at, right at the end of the 60s and that was apocalyptic. Mm. And I, I think I might have told you in the past that uh, one of the reasons I had the highest regard for Robbie Robertson um, and the band is the fact that they saved the day. Dylan didn't turn up. Mm. It was, uh, the weather was just ghastly, mm. mud everywhere. And it was the time when people were just doing too much acid. Mm. And so there were people up on the, on the gantries rocking them and stuff and it was like a scene from hell I'm serious it was horrible mm. um, and, and Dylan didn't arrive and the crowd were getting really really aggressive and Robbie and the band just played they just played yeah and you know the old thing is if you've done your two sets you just play the first set louder yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they sort of and they kept everyone together, basically. Wow. And he pled with the crowd. He, he yeah. you know, he, he yeah. spoke to the crowd and said, "Come on, you know." And eventually, the great man arrived. You know, did his phone in half an hour. Did his forty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Fucked off. Yeah, gave someone a nod as he left. <laughs> and everyone continued to revere him for. Well, I didn't. Forty years on, yeah, maybe not at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of rightly so too afterwards it's a strange and wonderful enigma of Dylan isn't it that um, so many awful life appearances when he played in that terrible place down on the waterfront yeah yeah Queen, uh, the event centre um, TSB now and um, 
Paddy Smith. Yeah. Was on the board. Ninety-seven. Paul Lugano Jones. Yeah. Uh, that was the first time I saw Dylan. Yeah, I was at yeah, that. We were there, and uh, I got into a bit of dialogue with uh, Nigel Cox. Was, oh yeah. Was yeah. there? Yeah. Nigel's a lovely fellow. Yeah. And, um, we talked about what had happened at the finish, the conclusion of um, the show. Uh, for some reason, I don't, you know, you never quite know, but the front three or four rows were packed out with um, kids aged probably from about 17 to 20. That's, right. I, I had glasses and I was looking at them. Mm. They were quite young. I'm but trying they to were, remember back to it, yeah. They were all in love with Bob. Yeah, it was yeah. like his fan club had arrived. Yeah. Um, and as he was walking off, these people were just, the noise was extraordinary. We love you and, yeah. you know, lots of arms and, you know, tremendous racket. And um, and I said to Nigel, just for uh, a half a second, as Bob was going out through the wings, he almost acknowledged them. <laughs> yeah, I... <what laughs> you I just saw the faintest moment where his arm twitched mm. as if he might just turn around and sort of make mm. some sort of gesture, but then he thought, no, I don't do that. Um, he, he, on that tour, I remember thinking that Patty Smith blew him off the stage. She was great. She was great. And I heard, yeah. I don't know if I told you this previously, but I heard the story that um, I've heard it enough that I sort of believe it's true, and just if it's not, it's part of the dialogue anyway, is that um, on that tour, Paul Urbana Jones, who who I loved at, by that point, you know, I'd seen him a few times and had, don't think I'd met him at that point, but I'd, I'd seen him play a bunch and thought he was great, so I wanted to get along to see him. But I, I heard afterwards um, that Paul got his moment to meet Dylan mm. on that tour, maybe that night, I think, or whenever the start of that tour was, and he was sort of tapped on the shoulder backstage and told he could leave his green room and go into Dylan's room and say hello and so he stuck his hand out to say hello to him and sort of gave him a little mini speech about you know the sorts of things you're talking about growing up in London and seeing Dylan play at the Albert Hall mm. and now I'm here opening for you and he had his hand extended and Dylan looked at him and said I haven't shaken anyone's hand in 25 years and then just walked off lovely that was it <laughs> that's his memory of <laughs> and then he has to go out and open the show for him so he was gutted. <laughs> but if you, I mean, if you ever wanted to get a snapshot of someone from a complete point of view, I mean, that would tell you everything you need to know about the, um, yep. the, the, the segue from, <laughs> from acoustic to electric. Yeah, yeah. He, he just did what he wanted to do. And well, it's a good, it's a, you know, the thing I've come to think with Dylan too is, it's an I don't know that this is why he does it, but it's an incredibly good coping mechanism for dealing with um, not only sycophants and idiots but mm. just the whole concept of fame yeah it's there has to be something in that that has to be part of the reason he's like that that he's developed that kind of hide I you think that, that could be right and I think also that now that you've said that probably in a way it explains a lot you know like the Isle of Wight I mean yeah, I, th I, think, yeah. I think he just said well you can't compromise you, there are no halfway houses with this stuff this is my method of survival mm. and I'm just gonna mm. you know if you think I'm an and asshole fine yeah and somewhere within that is somewhere within that of course is the accident and him sort of yeah. going, going to ground for a couple of years and and at, at nearly the height of fame kind of thing and then the Nashville skyline which is one he recorded right after is still my favorite well I love new morning 
which yeah. is just after that. Yeah. I, I don't dislike Nashville Skyline, I like it, but New Morning is the one for me that I think is unfairly forgotten or, or laughed at. Yeah. It's very, and I guess those those bootleg series tapes that come out kind of get people mm. newly enthused and with fresh ears and going, and you even can spot the people that are going, oh no, I always did like this, and mm. they didn't. They've just read the marketing around the new boot, <laughs> bootleg series album and decided they'd better be part of the club. Happens a lot at reissue time. Mm. Anyway, wh- whichever way you jump, you can't ignore the guy, and yeah. if you were naming, if you were seriously getting into lists, which I try not to do. Yeah. I mean, he'd have to be quite near the top of the list, wouldn't he? I think so. I think um, I think maybe for better and worse, you know, I think mm. maybe the, the, the list of people Dylan's had impact on would include far too many atrocious buskers. Mm. But, um, you know, <laughs> that's perhaps that's a small price to pay, um, given that you don't actually have to give them money to, you know, like it's a small price to pay for yeah. the, the, the gifts that he's given given the world. Yeah. Um, so, when do you, so when do you get into playing music a bit more seriously? And what's I think that's where we um, jumped off from. Oh, right. Well, that was when I had been living in New Zealand for a few years. Okay, so tell me about that. So what, what you came out to New Zealand in the mid-70s? Late 70s? 1976, yeah. And I why, met my why? wife is... A New Zealander, and we met in London. Okay. Um, and so. she wanted to come back. Or? Well, it was one thing or the other, and I've always been, you know, adventurous. And, you know, so you followed your heart. Pretty much, and I think that's quite a good thing and a fair thing to say, and I'm quite proud of it too. Yeah. I think following somebody for love is a pretty good reason. It's, a, it's the right reason, isn't it? That's yeah. a. Um, <sighs> What did it take? Uh, what did it actually take you to say goodbye to England? Then, obviously, that you're following your heart. But what did it mean to go? Not much. Really? Yeah. Well, England was different then, of course, too, wasn't it? The the England that you're in part romanticising and that I've always romanticised around these gigs. Yeah. That's that's ten years. Well, ago. I distinguish them. Yeah. Actually, Simon, I suppose. Mm. I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, or if it needs to be either, but. Um, Probably because the other aspect of my life um, growing up was I came from a very political family. Yeah. And my father in particular was um, an activist. Um, so I'd sort of adopted a point of view about Englishness, um, which led me to be quite antipathetic. Right. Actually. To, even though you, some of your listeners might be saying it's bloody pom mm. um, and all the rest of it, but I didn't. Um, the best part of England, I always used to say, was the you know the pubs and the football, yeah, um, and the gigs. Um, but and they seem to be kind of it's probably the constant for people that still seek it out as a place and that or that return or that you know like the, yeah, yeah. The, the culturally those things are um, not going to not going to shift, are they? I think things have, I mean, I've been, I mean, my parents are, are dead now, but when they were alive, we used to go over quite often to see them. And yeah. I, have, I have a sister that lives on the South Coast. Um, and I have friends who I still communicate, you know, I Skype with them, all, and, yeah. and when I've been there, I catch up with them, and they, one or two have been here, um, and we've reciprocated their hospitality. Um, I think things have changed a bit, Simon. Oh, of course. And, um, yeah. Well, I'm saying in terms of the the sort of fixed poles that were there. I mean, 
have changed, I think, actually more than I thought when I first started thinking seriously about it. Where, you know, when I left school and, and went for an interview, the class system was still uh, firmly in place, and that there was evidence of it everywhere you went. Um, and all of the prejudices and fixed positions uh, were evidenced. You know, you're talking about the 60s. Imagine a radio broadcast with all of the people uh, associated with uh, Monty Python and the goodies. Mm, and mm. There was a thing called, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. We were talking about this the other day that came up. And, you know, these programs and TV, they have catchphrases, don't they? Mm. And the audience is waiting for them. Yeah, yeah. On I'm sorry, I'll read that again, um, Bill Oddie and uh, someone else would have a, a conversation uh, and, and typically let's just say, it's a, well, so-and-so isn't here, to, where, where is he, what's happened? Uh, and he said, oh, he was, uh, he was unwell, he had a blackout. And Bill Oddie would go, hello there. 1964, man. Mm. And people mm. would laugh, mm. you know. No, I, I don't want to get into the realms of... You could play it today in Hawke's Bay and people would still... Oh, I'm, like sure, I'm, sure that, I'm, I'm sure that's right. And, yeah. I, and of course, now it's entirely uh, possible to be accused of being politically correct. And I don't mm. want to wander down, but I'm just yeah, yeah. illustrating yeah, yeah. that all of those sort of attitudes which come out of that... Uh, look, you know, if you lived in London, and maybe this needs to be touched on, Essentially, you felt like you were living in the capital of not just the, of England, not just the world, yeah. but the bloody universe. Yeah, yeah. That was how you felt. Yeah. Um, it, the classrooms that you sat in all had maps of the world, and the pink bits were ours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't matter that that had faded, uh, mm. uh, and all the rest of it. That, it was still there, and. If you uh, were working in the city of London, as I was, uh, the way you talked, the way you dressed, where you went to school, who your father was, and all of those sorts of things were still hugely relevant mm, mm. to uh, a young man or a young woman uh, wanting, to, wanting to make their way in the world. Now, I think that in that period you were talking around, the late 70s and early 80s, I think things did change. Um, and we're not here to, to get into a treatise about mm. economics, but I do think that Reagan, Reaganomics and Thatcherism had quite a lot to do with creating a caste um, as opposed to a class. So where if you go there now, um, material wealth and status to some extent of superseded class. Mm. So you get a lot more people with regional accents in positions of power. Mm. You'd never have got someone with a regional accent. Yeah, be laughed at. As a chief executive of a yeah. powerful organisation or uh, on BBC Radio or something like that, unless it was part of the gig. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's, let's have a Darth Northerner or but something. You know, um, you know. So now it's this, and if you, you know, it's not even how you came about that. It's if yeah, you have, sure. if you have money. And I think that sort of impacted on the cultural. Environment mm. as well. Mm. I mean, I, I, you'd have to put. I mean, you'd have to look at it in, in quite a lot did of detail. It, 
Um, there's two things I want to ask you here, so mm. I'll, we'll, go, we'll go back first, I'll try and remember the, the second thing I want to ask you that's tied directly to what you're saying timeline-wise, but, mm. but I was going to say, so you, you said your father was an activist, Yeah. so did you, um, you obviously were inspired by that, influenced by that, but did you drill down into what had created that in him? Um, yes, we, we did talk, he talk. We talked about he, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he explain what had shaped him? Yeah, he did. Um, the joke in the family was that my father was the white sheep of the family. Um, this is quite a good gag, really. <laughs> um, that came from Pimlico, which is sort of uh, sort of around Victoria. Um, Westminster around there, but it's the rough part of town, and there was a lot of criminality in his family, yeah. and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. Um, I had an uncle, um, <laughs> and some days you'd go, uh, go and visit Uncle Chris, and um, you'd go in there and there'd be this magnificent furniture and all of the, everything, you know, and then you go two weeks later and be nothing there, because it had been reclaimed. <laughs> <laughs> He never quite knew what the story was, but Dad. Um, you think he'd gone out to? Well, here's the th dr here's dress, the thing. Dress the house for visitors. I tell you, this is quite an intimate story, but I mean, it's a good question you've asked, and I don't mind telling it. When Dad died, I had to. My sister wasn't up to um, sort of dealing with. Uh, they lived in a council masonette and mm. just outside Putney in southwest London. So I went over. Obviously, anyway, I went, but I basically went to take care of things. My mother was in a care facility hmm. um, and one of the documents that I found which he'd left in a very handy place with some other significant documents I think he knew that's my feeling hmm. was a letter from the principal of Westminster College now my father had won a scholarship to Westminster <laughs> College now this is like one of the most prestigious hmm schools um, but he had to leave when he was about 14 and a half because I think my grandfather was probably banged up in one of his majesty's hotels and you know he had to go and run the family get some work and, yeah and yeah yeah so on, contribute know. and look after and I found this amazing letter yeah uh, which I've got it's here wow saying um, I commend William to um, uh, to anyone that reads this letter, he, he is highly talented and is never idle. And so I think my father's. I got into an argument once with him, and I used the old. So I said, "Oh well, your um, your business is very well balanced. You have a chip on either shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, this is when I was a bit bigger." Mm. <laughs> uh, I think. A lot of it was was based in the loss of that opportunity. Yeah, right. And that would have been probably a common experience for yeah. a lot of bright young men and women who probably had to forego better things in order to help support their families. Or and that's a kind of um, a kind of grieving that continues on through their life because it's never correctly addressed at the time. It's just put put to the side mm -hmm. as evidenced by hanging on to that letter. Yeah. So I mean that's you, you know you've asked me the question yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. I think 
it's only an interpretation. I can't. He, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it did figure quite a lot in. Um, I mean, he was a very private man, um, and you know, and he also had that uh, <laughs> zealig uh, uh, sort of quality to his life. Mm. He intersected with some really interesting stuff. Before he was called up, he um, he was working on building the cabinet war rooms by St James's Park. Right there, mm. uh, and um, he told me. Sitting at the piano, he, yes, we have no bananas, right? <laughs> and he said, you know where that comes from? And I said, I think I do. And he said, well, there was supposed to be a, a shortage of fresh fruit during the war because of the German blockades. And stuff. Yeah. He said, but Winston Churchill always got bananas, Alan. <laughs> I said, how, how the hell did you know that? He said, well, I was working there. Wow. <laughs> and um, I'll have to tell Oscar that that's one of his favourite songs. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, I love that song. Um, yeah. I think it's Louis Prima yes. singing it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He loves it. It's oh, on cool. some. It's on. There's a really cool compilation uh, called Jazz for Kids, and um, some of the things on it you probably wouldn't quite call jazz. Right. But it's, well, it's things like Louis Armstrong singing "What a Wonderful World," but you certainly. Certainly, Louis Armstrong's jazz, but I don't know yeah. if him singing "What a Wonderful World" is. But yeah, it's got Ella Fitzgerald singing um, um, "Old MacDonald Had a Farm," and things like that. But it's got Louis Prima singing that banana song, which is great. Fantastic. Um, so, what did what did your what sort of shape did your political activism take? Well, I mean, do you want to talk about that? Well, I can touch on it. I yeah. mean, it's still it's one of those sort of subjects where. Uh, you know, people. Do, do people ever talk about the other Simon? Is there another Simon, sort of that we don't know about? Um, you don't have to answer that question, but it's sort of like I don't know if there is. Well, I mean, I guess that if people, I think I'm, I'm so used to um, talking about myself in, mm. in in a variety of platforms now that um, you know, I'm really this and blogging and stuff that I'm just I'm just whoever I. Yeah. present that I am like I'm sure I don't share every single thing about my life but I don't really censor it too heavily either no well so. I'm, I'm like that and I get I do I can be criticised for being too much like an open book from time to time yeah. by people who I love that are close to me they, mm, they try and trying to shield me um, so the answer to your question is yes I I, um, I came from a political family and um, there were you know meetings and uh, my father uh, knew Tom Dryberg, um, who was the first openly gay uh, uh, member of Parliament, and, and uh, he was a powerhouse, an intellectual mm. in, the, in the Labour Party in the fifties, an extraordinary fellow. And he actually, we lived in a prefab, shows <laughs> you how, you know, how poor we were. Mm. So those sort of bloody things that the Americans gave. You know, we mm. lived in it. And um, anyway, they, they'd had their meetings there. You know, when I was, um, before we moved into the prefab, we lived in Brixton. Uh, and my father would go out with his comrades when Mosley's uh, fascists were on their flatback trucks coming around Brixton and trying to stir up racial hatred because by that time there was a significant immigrant population, mm. mostly from the West Indies, but they were from other places too. So living in Brixton, in, uh, it was a pretty hot, Mm. Thing and Dad would go out with his mates with cudgels, 
and fight these people. And he'd say, we didn't fight a world war against Hitler and his friends so that we could have this when we came home. Mm, wow. So you want to know what my political influences were? Yeah. Seeing <laughs> Dad coming up the stairs with my mother crying uh, in the living room, waiting for him to come home, and, and seeing him, um, you know, wearing a, a white shirt with blood all over it. It's quite an impact. What you think about your dad? Yeah. So. Um, what age are you there? Oh, when that first happened, I was. That yeah, that you can remember. Oh, about seven or eight. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Not very old. Mm. And uh, and that was you know like somebody putting their money where their mouth was. That was the first thing I thought about. That when I got old enough mm. to, to have those more sort of yeah, ad yeah. abstract connections with, yeah. with with why people did stuff, and yeah. he became a sort of hero for me mm. in my mind. You know, and, uh, the not not necessarily around the actual action that he took, but around the conviction. Yes. As much as anything. As I say, putting your money where your yeah. mouth is. There's yeah, lots yeah. of people that will fight a good fight from the armchair. Mm. We know that. Mm. I've done it myself. Yeah. Um, but, you know. So I, um, I've been thrown out of the Labour Party twice. Um, <laughs> it's not hard to do. <laughs> uh, I desperately wanted to be part of the, the mainstream, but um, I just get, I just get kept getting pushed further and further. I mean, you know, when you're young and very idealistic and you want to change the world in mm. 10 minutes mm. um, and you're mixing with a whole bunch of other people that want to do just the same, mm. um, most of them university educated. Um, so were there some important people there? I mean, probably all, when you're that age, everyone thinks they're the important. Oh, uh, there were some stellar people. You know, I mean, because I've always, I mean, hopefully had a good sense of humour. Like, I, we'd turn up to party headquarters and I'd make a big show of sniffing the air and someone would say, what's that? And I'd say, oh, Vanessa's here. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, Chanel number five. No one else I know in the party with is Chanel number five, you know. <laughs> so the Redgraves were part of it. Mm. And I knew Corrin quite well. Mm. And he came here to make the governor. Right. The series about George Gray. Yeah. 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 Mm. So I, I knew him. There were others who maybe um, it would not be prudent to mention because I think the expression is fellow travellers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't. I, I sort of feel tempted to because of the extraordinary heavyweight quality of things. So well, maybe just one. Um, well, I don't think it's a secret, so I'll say Ken Loach. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not going to surprise <laughs> too many people. For Except I think that, that to Ken's credit, uh, that although what he does quite often is overtly agitprop, mm. um, he also makes bloody good movies. Mm, mm. Absolutely. You know, in fact, it's hard to think of a bad one. You mm. know, and... As his, um, that documentary he made um, on that, uh, what's it called, The Spirit of 45. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an incredibly good film because, um, and if you think about the terms on which the last general election in Britain were fought, it was all about 
saving the national health. Mm. So that movie deals with the sort of uh, nascent uh, uh, period of, of the socialization of, of um, the sort of social welfare uh, portfolios and the um, the socialization of railways and mm. mines and you know and all the rest of it mm, mm. and it'd be interesting to see whether or not Jeremy Parkin puts that all back on the agenda. I suspect that's what they're all frightened of mm. from looking at the way that they're getting stuck into so what were you what are your thoughts about um what's going on there now um i can i mean I don't want to be trite because i mean we're talking about people's lives and and their commitment, and I certainly don't want to. But there's been a lot of discussion in the media uh, there and and here. Uh, There are one or two media commentators, uh, political commentators up up in Auckland that have fixated themselves on Parkin and um, what's his name, Sanders. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it does seem to be a phenomenon, doesn't it, that all of a sudden there's this left shift. Yeah, yeah. Well, my historical view of, of that, to answer your question, is that if Parkin is a socialist, then he'll put clause four back into the Labour Party constitution, won't he? Blair took it out, which is the old Keir Hardy mm. uh, uh, clauses which talk about um, the ownership of the means of production and distribution. Mm. Blair took them out and said this is the new Labour Party where we look to capitalism uh, as our model. Mm. and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not making any comment about whether that's right or wrong, but mm-hmm. he did that. And mm-hmm. I'm, once again, only commenting on mm. if, if people use the word socialist, um, I think that they probably have to explain what they mean, because mm. it may have changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty I'm, I'm pretty clear about what a socialist is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's um, socialism is a revolutionary concept, mm, mm. basically. Well, let's go to the, 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 the thing that I parked before mm. was um, when you were talking about leaving England and the England that you knew and how it had changed a bit since. Um, what was your impression of coming to New Zealand? And what did you know about... You, you knew this woman. Yeah, yeah. And what did you really know about New Zealand before you got here? And Well, I, I think I had the basic stereotype, which mm. was completely wrong. It was more British than Britain. I was going to say, uh, yeah. coming to, I mean, we're talking around the time that I was born, so I don't mm. have a great perspective on it mm. firsthand because I'm um, in nappies. But um, thinking back to just past that, um, yeah, New Zealand took a long time to develop past that very British identity. Well, I think. Yeah, I mean, oh. that was, well, that, that's the answer to the question, what did I think of it? I mean, mm. you know, the sound of lever on willow and, mm. you know, people behaving in a sort of gentlemanly fashion, I suppose mm. you'd say, and mm. leisurely walks in the countryside and yeah. all of that stuff. Um, and people knowing their place, I suppose. So it was recognisable. <laughs> um, well, also, there was a fondness. Um, I mean, so there are two influences. There's, there's, there's the generic, broader influence, which is you get from, you know, uh, media sources and, mm. and reference books and what you learn at school. Mm. And then there's the more f- familial um, uh, inputs. Um, my dad um, served in the Long Range Desert Group. 
<laughs> in the Second World War, mm. and he served alongside New Zealanders. Mm. So, and he was still in correspondence with some of them, right, for for quite a while. Mm. And I knew that he had the most deep and abiding respect for New Zealanders in terms of the way that they participated in that conflict. Mm. Uh, and he said quite a brutal thing um, that he was like that. He told me that New Zealanders were the best killers in the world. Wow. He said, you wouldn't want anyone else in a thing like the LRDG. New Zealanders did it better than anyone. Did it? Did, and, did, and people didn't want to fuck with him. Did you think about yeah. why that might be? And did he? Or well, because it's his words. I can remember it very. Because they were yeah, close yeah, to the earth. Yeah. Yeah. They were close to the earth. Yeah. That's how he said it. Mm -hmm. And he said, "You don't." And um, he, some of his, uh, when when he was in the, they were in somewhere like Cairo or Alexandria on a bit of R and R. And by that time, he, I think he was a corporal or possibly a sergeant. Mm. And some of his squad got involved in a ruck in a bar uh, with some guys from the Maori battalion. Mm. And he had to go and rescue the situation. And he said to his, you don't need to be messing with these guys. Yeah, yeah. This is not a conflict you can ever win. Yeah, yeah. Just, just sit um, back. I remember him. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean that mm. it's a, it's a slight, it's a little bit of a fable, but um, I'm, you know, he did tell me the story, and um, as I say, he served alongside. I mean, he told me all sorts of stuff, which you know, mm. he said Tobruk would never have been relieved if it wasn't for the Anzacs. He said the British troops wouldn't have been able to do it, and the Anzacs were always the front line troops. They were mm. better led, they were better generals. So. Mm with whom they had good relationships and they, they could be relied upon to get the job done. Mm. There you are. Mm. So I knew a bit about the character, shall we say, of, of <laughs> as dad had experienced, so it was sort of vicariously mm. from my point of view. So um, I was keen to come here and find out. Do anything different basically, like yeah. find something to do that was different for being a new place. And, you know, one of the things that struck me, Simon, not long, you know, afterwards, was the con there was a continual debate, of, you know, with our New Zealand. I couldn't, it was really hard to get to grips with. Mm. I, I imagined I was coming to a place where people knew exactly who they were and where they were going and mm. what it was all about. But that wasn't mm. how it was. Uh, you know, all of the sort of TV chat shows and things were constantly discussing who we are and where, you know, how do we get there and where, where is it we're going anyway, and, mm. you know. And I suppose when I think about that in context, I mean, that in a sense sort of was a harbinger for um, what happened with the Springbok tour, really, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. I think suddenly a lot of New Zealanders answered the question, didn't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely. From either side. Yeah, they, yeah. They said, well, Some of them couldn't quite recall 
the question or where they were. No, they couldn't, <laughs> even though they, 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 they were enormously <laughs> bright and had a university education. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't remember how they felt about it. Yeah. Well, I can remember how I felt about it. And um, and most of, and I we have um, friends who were hopelessly and enduringly divided. Right. By that. You so, mean couples? Yep. Wow. Families. Yeah. Yeah. Families that were irrevocably split. Yeah. By what happened. Wow. Wow. Well, it was such a big deal. Mm. And it's one of those things that, you know, if you're going to, you know, you can obviously say, well, I don't care. Um, and, and, and that manifests itself in lots of ways. But if you mm. have a point of view, you can't really hedge, can you? Mm. Mm. So people were either saying sports got nothing to do with politics, mm. which was probably. The ante room to a much more provocative point of view, mm. uh, or we should not be cohabiting on a sports field with these people because mm. they're racists mm. and they have a form of government which is based around mm. denial of opportunity mm. to a whole section of their population, by far the most significant section of the population. So, what did you do in regard to this? What did you not very much yeah I mean and that there was yeah I was well I did do stuff but it was behind the scenes and mm -hmm. uh, I was a bit afraid I think of of coming to the attention of um, the political police right mm. paranoid uh, probably was yeah mm. yeah mm. Mm. Um, seems odd now yeah know, I was gonna say probably about it here I am this pillar, pillar of the establishment. <laughs> <laughs> um, what musical opportunities happened in New Zealand for you? When did you, when did you sort of get into playing here? How long were you living here before? And um, what were you doing? Were you, were you always, you know, having to sing, even if it was just along with, along with music that was playing? Were you... No, I was just collecting, Simon, just collecting. And we'd go and see... Yeah. You know, so you'd see yeah. shows out here? Yeah, like, you know. Like, you know, yeah, shortly sure. after you arrived? Yeah. I think but, the first big show I saw was B.B. King. Right. At the town hall. But you, what yeah. about local music here? Did that mean anything to you instantly, or was it about seeing those yeah, two Yeah, well, acts? a guy I worked with, Paul, Paul Cullen. Yeah. Paul, I hope you're listening. Um, the first job I had was with P&O. Um, mm. in the Hope Gibbons building and put, uh, I worked with a guy called Paul Cullen who was the lead guitarist in um, Strike Master mm -hmm. you know mm. yeah so we used to go and see them mm. occasionally and um, uh, what was his name Mark Mark Williams mm -hmm. yeah and saw Mark Williams mm. Beaver yeah um, um, Bruno yeah um, and Simon Morris Played yeah. in our band for a while. Right. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people could say that about Simon. Simon. He's, he's, he's a well-travelled um, um, musical entity in I think, I think our drummer who worked out at Avalon, I think mm. I think he knew him. And um, So I can tell you with my hand on my heart that for a while I played in a guitar, a guitar band because we had so many guitars. It was... <laughs> We, he wasn't replacing anyone, he just came in as another lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah. so I had rhythm, bass and, and two leads. Yeah. And it was actually quite good. 
He's because um, he's a very sympathetic. Yes. Uh, uh, contributor. I quite like the um, three guitar format too. Yeah. Uh, interesting things can happen with with three guitars. Well, but the main thing that he contributed was like <laughs> doing a gig out in the hut for some private gig, and I'm. It was pretty raucous and pretty disorganised and mm. I suppose I always get the, there's a small amount of control freak in me, mm. not much and I think Simon managed to bring it out and I went two, three, four and nothing happened. Mm. I turned around and they're all wetting themselves because he's telling jokes and <laughs> farting and mm. doing all sorts of things. Mm. Um, very funny fellow. Mm. Great subject for an interview, I because mm. he's got so many stories that he can tell. Yeah, I've not talked to him in an interview capacity, but I'd, I'd like to do that. Mm. He had an interesting, because his dad was Kevin Morris's director of television, wasn't he? Mm. Museum of Television. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I, 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 he's, he's on my list actually. And he he plays well. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that I remember him. Uh, he, he came along to meet us. Uh, and I mean, I sort of knew who he was, but mm. uh, anyway, I mean, it was good. We were, all the guys were pretty laid back and sort of, you know, it was very backbiting in the, in, in the band. Mm. And I thought I'd try him out because I'm a bit like that, as you know. Mm. Um, so I, I, I played the first five or six bars of something obscure. And Simon just looked over and went, oh, Gregory Isaacs, Night, night Nurse. Yeah. <laughs> He's... Oh, it's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this guy has obviously got the right stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds right. Um, what? Um, when did the sort of writing side for you come mm. out? Like the, the blogging that you're doing now. Oh, the writing music. Yeah. Or the uh, no, no. Sort of commentary. Criticism, poetry, yeah. Well, I guess some yeah. of the poetry in that comes from writing music, right? Uh, yeah. You know, it's 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 lyrics, and you, yeah. you still write lyrics, or yeah. you know, have done recently in that. But is, is it that that then bends itself to other forms of writing? I've always been interested in it, but yeah. like a lot of people, I mean, I, there's somewhere in, in you know one of the cardboard boxes. Mm. There's all the stuff that I'd have written down when I was stoned, or yeah drunk or both or yeah whatever yeah um, and uh, and some published stuff mm. uh, and one or two exemplary letters to the editor mm. um, in London I got into a duel with Auburn War <laughs> in whatever the uh, tabloid was yeah. that he was writing for yeah I had a crack at him and he had a crack back yeah. And it went on. What was that over? Can't remember. <laughs> um, but I uh, got an invitation down to... A difference in opinion. In oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I I mean, what I did was I aped his style. Right. And so I was very acerbic yes. and, and sort of quite bitter. Yeah. And I said something like, that's, that's quite something coming from... Um, London's best tabloid critic. Oh yes, I know, I know those sorts of letters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but anyway, um, he invited us down to his place in, it was in Somerset or something mm. like that. 
I got to know him a little bit. Yeah. So, so it sounds like I'm name dropping, but no, um, continue. Uh, people people listen to things like this to to hear names drop. It's fun. Okay. Yeah. Go for uh, it. Don't don't worry about it at all. But he was a pretty stern fellow, um, and I, um, you know, living in the shadow of an incredibly famous yes. and talented father. He yeah. was one of the scions of you know the British literary yeah. establishment. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that must have been difficult for him. Yes. But he was quite sharp. I remember um, we had some sort of Italianti meal. It might have been just spaghetti or something. Did he talk to you about his father? No. No. Consciously, but there was stuff or, all around the oh house. Oh yeah, okay, okay. You know. So that's that's what I was getting at. Like he, yeah. he didn't consciously avoid the subject; it just didn't come up. No, well, no, he didn't. It was obvious. Yeah. He no, he sent the signals out, Simon. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Got, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was looking for the first editions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And he made it pretty obvious that. Yeah. Um, that's a close. Because there was so, there were brothers. That, that mm. was, was there an Eric? I can't. There, there were. You know, he mm. wasn't an only child. No. And I think they all got involved in the arts or literature yeah, yeah. or something. And um, but he used to write for Private Eye. Yeah. As yeah. well. Um, and, mm. and, it, and it was pretty scabrous sort of attack mm. journalism. Mm. You know. Mm. Uh, uh, Anyway, we had this, like, it was something with pastor. And he packed both of his children off to bed because they wouldn't eat the pastor. Mm. The prop, what, the correct way. The correct way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember thinking, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> glad, this, glad this guy's not my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so the your writing... Mm. Where has that come from recently, in terms of like, what are you trying to do with your? Uh, um, I wish I could answer that question. Yeah, um, that's probably why you're doing it to find out why you're doing it. I think. What, what, I mean, the blogs, Wise Blood has been yeah. up for about three years. Yeah. Um, and I had a sort of gentleman's approach to it, very much. Mm. It was like, what the idle rich do. <laughs> I don't go fishing for salmon or shooting grouse. I sit down and and write a very nicely considered piece mm, mm. for the month. Mm. <laughs> um, two and a half, maybe three months ago, I had the sort of soul on the road to Tarsus thing. I mean, I just woke up one morning and I, I was completely and utterly fed up with myself. Seriously. Mm. I just was beating myself up hugely. And I said, this has got to stop. There's still some life. Mm. Um, and I... Did you feel that, did you feel that fully coming to a head? Like, did you... Yeah, 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 it was. Like a, you know, cliche, was, but like a make or break type... It was, I was... ...situation was, yeah, where yeah. you and I have to address this. Yeah. Yeah. It was light blue touch paper or retire. Mm -hmm and retire, or mm. retire. Mm. So I lit the blue touch paper mm. uh, and decided to, um, I'm, I'm not going to say that I've done the Anthony Burgess thing and, and, and I want, I'm going to write, you know, 2,000 words a day, mm, mm. but it was sort of the template. Yeah, 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 something like that. As you yeah. can see. Yeah. Um, but every now and again I have to stop now and take stock mm. um, 
and then do some research and make some notes mm. um, so that I can leaven the spontaneous pieces like the, the piece I wrote about record collecting which yeah. was quite yeah. with uh, maybe a, a review of a, of a good film that I've seen or a bad film that I've seen mm. or um, some recollection which um, might be worth sharing mm. um, but they require a bit of care mm. uh, but you seem um, one of the things I, I, I was interested to talk to you about and I guess a, a a compliment that I want to pay you anyway, um, whether it becomes a discussion, is um, your Facebook persona, which I think we've discussed before, is mm. is in part absolutely and utterly you, and then in part a persona, and that's probably um, most people on Facebook really. But mm. um, you uh, you seem to have grasped the point of it, and as much as there is a point of it, um, better than I think a lot of people. Um, I'm trying to politely say of, of mm. your age, your generation, you know, people yeah. that, I mean myself too, because obviously Facebook's a new, still a newish thing, but just digital communication seems to um, yeah. be impossible for some people and you seem to kind of get it. And also you're using the Facebook medium for things like um, sharp, concise, capsule reviews of, like you write very well about film, mm-hmm. and but you'll do it in a status update. And, yeah. that's, and, that, and, and you seem to understand that that is actually a valid yeah. way to go about it and that it isn't just it isn't just I could have written this or I could have written you know got up today and had the shits you know like, you know, it's, or whatever like you, you get yeah. yeah oh thanks for that because that is the point yeah yeah and I do get it mm. um, and, and I think that there's a sort of market so was it a light bulb moment thing for you with Facebook though? Did you? No, my son introduced me to it. It's just why I've got the interesting spelling of my second name. Mm, it's mm. a mistake, but I quite mm, liked mm. being called Francais. Mm. Instead of Francis, it's much nicer. Mm. Uh, and it's also close to my sort of uh, soul in a sense. I mean, mm. I, I, I like the French. I like their culture. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's quite but, nice. But was it? You get this introduction to Facebook, and do you go? This is, you know, this is what I can do with it. I mean, obviously you're exploring it, yeah. and probably still are exploring it. But you know, like, do you go, um, wow, this is a great way to send things out into the world, to have a say, to, you know, build, build oh. up a bunch of ideas. Uh, well, you, you're really heading down a path that I haven't bothered to explore. To be honest, um, well, probably no one has. I'm probably just no. I mean, I think it's a really good question, and I think yeah, my first reaction to it is probably that, like a lot of stuff that we all do, it's, mm. it's probably closely associated with ego. Mm, mm. I like to be heard. Mm. I really do. Mm. Someone asked me why. Um, the the uh, I drop another name, but it's just mm. for a purpose. Mm. Uh, when I had my fiftieth birthday. Um, I hired the, the, the hall down on Point Jerningham mm. by Rosney School mm. and the band played for everyone. It was great. Mm. And one of the people that I invited uh, was Ian Weddy, mm-hmm. who's a friend and a neighbour and a mm. colleague. Mm. Uh, but Ian couldn't make it because his birthday is very close to mine and he was doing um, a piggyback jump out of an aeroplane. 
right? Hmm. And um, I said to Ian, you know what? That would be a fantastic thing to do, but I don't know whether or not I'd be brave enough hmm. to do it. And, and that's a fact. Hmm. And he laughed. I said, what, why is that funny? He said, what did you do? I said, oh, I said, we hired the hall. You know what we did? And about 150 people turned up. He said, and you sang to an audience of 150 people, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, and you think I'm brave? <laughs> so the dynamic is flight or fight, isn't mm, it? Mm. That's what they refer to. Mm. And I think anyone that's got up and done it has that recognition. I remember reading um, an article which was towards the end of his career and towards the end of his life, um, an interview with Luciano Pavarotti, mm. and they asked him about performing and how supremely confident he was. You know, it was quite a gushing thing. Mm. And he laughed. And the person said, why are you laughing? He said, because you've got no idea what goes on. And they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm going to tell you something and you just have to take it literally. Mm. In the five minutes immediately prior to the concert starting, I have no concept of who I am, wow. what I've achieved, mm. where I am. He said, I could be a fridge or <laughs> some sort of inanimate object. Mm. I have nothing inside me. I'm a complete void. void. Yeah. There is no ontological Luciano, it's not there. Yeah. And he said, and then I hear <coughs> Maestro tapping the rostrum of his baton, and he said, and then all of a sudden, I'm back. <laughs> Isn't that something? Well, you know, I think it take, it, it, um, it's a great way to put it, and it's a, it's a, it's a, um, nice way to articulate what I'm sure lots of people do yeah. and have to do and perhaps actually some don't stop to realise that that is what you know perhaps some people don't performers or whatever don't actually stop to think that that's what they're going through I think and you, and you do need to take stock um, you haven't directly referred to it but so I mean but so the answer to the question mm. what's the finest what's your finest hour <laughs> hang on I'll just check my notes I think that's my next question <laughs> we shall fight them on the bandstand um, Millennium Eve uh, uh, down in Golden Bay uh, and the, the place is packed and it's been um, exacerbated by the fact that the, uh, no, what was that thing called? Was it called? Not the, the gathering? Um, the thing that oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, we had the most fearful uh, uh, storm. That's right. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. And all the kids uh, drifted down to the Muscle Inn. Mm. Sorry, that's where we were playing. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and they cleared every stick of excess furniture. <laughs> everything out because uh, we started at nine or thereabouts and we finished around three mm. we played for six hours with two breaks mm. and at one point uh, I looked around at Mike 
the, uh, Jameson, the rhythm guitarist. Because uh, I looked at, because you try not to make eye contact when you're up mm. there. You don't, you know what I mean? Mm, mm, yeah. Totally. You sort of see the... Mm. The, the mass, the mass, but not, you, you don't make things out. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I sort of looked out and it was, it was sort of like a Warner Brothers cartoon. It was mm. like the whole, we were playing Give Me Some, Give Me Some Loving. Mm. And the whole place scene was, the building was inextricably linked mm. to the people and to the instruments. It was mm. a sort of Zen thing going mm. on, you know. And everything was throbbing and there were people up, girls up on guys' shoulders and stuff. Mm. And I looked at Mike, and he looked at me as we playing, and I just mouthed to him, we're doing this. And he just, the look of untrammeled pleasure. But don't you think everyone needs, I'm sure everyone has them, but everyone needs that sort of moment, and to actually know that they've had that sort of moment? And do you find that mm. in New Zealand, anyway, I don't know that we're particularly that good at recognising that moment about ourselves. Like people, people mm. quite often will be in the crowd going, they'll remember that New Year's Eve and go, that was a wonderful night. Even right at the time, they'll go, I'm having the best time. This band is great. Mm. Whatever. This is, you know, I'm with... But it's really healthy for the person on the stage to turn around and go, we're doing this. Mm. This is why this is happening. This is great. I, mm. I made. I'm making this happen, or we're making this happen. And I. I. I don't think people do that enough. Uh, it's hard for me to to comment. I, mm. You know. Uh, yeah, clearly, I suspect that that might be part. Clearly, of, because you did it. <laughs> well, well, it might be part of the you know so-called New Zealand character. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. We are. I mean, we are quite a, a self-effacing nation. I think mm. we're quite dry. Mm. Um, we don't extol our own virtues very mm. much. Mm. Um, is that what you're driving at? I think so. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I think maybe that's a good thing. But um, mm. I think quite quite often it is. But I sometimes wish we were a little bit better at going. Yeah, I I did this and and this is great and and not because it's me, but because yeah. but because it's happening and I and for whatever reason, I or we or whoever it is was able to help harness this. Yeah. And you know the, the 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 thing is, I think we worry that it comes across as I did this. Well, it is an extension of ego, but exactly. Yeah, but what, what the subtext is yeah. in my saying that, yeah, that yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it's we worked really hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're a pickup band. Yeah. We've all got day jobs. Yeah. But we've practiced twice a week. I was going to say we didn't just work hard tonight. We've we, we've, hard we've had meetings. Yeah. We've yeah. agonised over the set lists. Yeah. We've had the arguments. All of the stuff mm. that you imagine happens in a band of course, uh, happened in our band, mm. and we were good mates. Mm. But we, you know, it was hard. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, um, and then you, um, you uh, we got double what we got. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got a thousand dollars. Yeah, to travel all, all the way to Golden Bay and um, back uh, mm. to play for six hours. Mm. But we were delighted to do it. Mm. I mean, you know. Um, and and you know from that experience how tough it is for professional full-time musicians yeah 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 you sort of think christ you know when the band uh, we were called the originally we were called brown shoes don't make it and we were named after a frank zappa mm -hmm. song which is sort of quite contrary really mm -hmm. when I think about it. but mm -hmm. and then we became the brown shoes blues band mm -hmm. um, um, 
but when it was, you know, when we were getting, shall we say, you know, the peak of our powers, mm. whatever, um, you know, we were working quite often, most weekends. Mm. Uh, so you got a feel for what it would be like for mm. Dave Dobbin. Or, yeah, totally. You know, yeah. and it was hard. Yeah, totally. You know, and I was probably, I mean, forgive me guys if you're listening, but I was probably the one guy in the band that had some organisational skills. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I tended to do a lot of running around and, you know, negotiating yeah. and yeah. trying to get gigs for us and stuff like that. I mean, the others, all they weren't lazy, but I mean, I'm just saying, musicians typically, I mean, the cliche holds are pretty, you know, I had one guy, I mean, you know, you consider yourself fortunate if he actually found where you were mm. going and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and turned up within an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, time. I've done, um, interesting the point that you said there about um, just playing weekends mm. for a portion of your life gives you some understanding of, and you know, I sort of, you know, I, I always think it's absurd and I'm sure, I'm sure you do too, but, you know, I've been writing reviews and, and commentary and stuff for a while and you always get these comments about that people seem to think that you can say what you want about music being good and no one asks your credentials but if you if you put it down if you say that you didn't like it and here's why and you're quite rough about it suddenly you're only allowed to do that if you can apparently prove yourself as being a better musician which is absurd mm. but the one thing I I sort of keep in the back of my mind is in some small sense I I kind of I do know what it's like to perform for people because I have played in some bands and I have emceed some events and and spoken before crowds and so I I'm not saying I could have done it full time or I should have or anything like that. All I mean is I do understand in some practical sense the the um, neuroses people might have to battle the yeah. the nerves. The, the situation and and the toll that it takes on you physically to you know I've had I've played in working pub bands that have done seven hour gigs mm. and, and and regularly done four hour gigs with just a couple of ten minute breaks and and you do three of those in a week and it is exhausting it's, you know it's tough and 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 then there are people that are doing it you know five nights a week and seven nights a week for stretches and it's and traveling uh, internationally it's it's crazy. Well, it, so I do have some understanding of that. So it's a well, good it's, point. It's, it's, it is. It's a very mm. um, complex dynamic. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't know if every other band did it, but we always felt that there was a need to turn our material over too. You know, mm. Mm. yeah, so exactly. It's, it's a bit like stock in a shop. You yeah. know, you, you've sold that much, so you've got to put new stuff back on totally. the shelves. So yeah. we sort of, and also if you're playing at the Muscle Inn. Mm. What you play isn't necessarily what you play at a, at a wedding. That's right. Uh, well, you don't shape it the same way anyway. You might, it might have similar components, but you put it together differently. And um, if I could say one thing about what I always try and bring to anything I do, anything, uh, it's that word rigor, which you don't hear very often these mm. days. And people mm. that have worked with me will know that I can have my slack moments. I can drift off just mm. like anyone else. Mm. But basically the watchword is research and practice and um, I wrote a blog and I know you read it called performance mm. because mm. I'd been to a gig 
um, by quite a well-known local musician, and I was enormously disappointed, not because they were musically inept, mm. but because I felt they'd been horrifically lazy mm. in, their, in their preparation yeah. and treated their audience well. um, in, in a very offhand yeah. way, as if yeah. somehow people that were turning up were sort of bumpkins or something, you yeah. know, and, and that doesn't do. Mm. And when you write your criticism uh, or your review or whatever it is that you want, I'm sure you you question yourself and go through the internal uh, Q&A and, and, and all the rest of it so that what comes out of the keyboard is what you want to say and not what you feel someone else might want you to mm. say or mm. some half-assed mm. uh, uh, genuflection or, or whatever mm, mm. Uh, you could you, you know it's got to be what Simon feels about about mm. the show or whatever it is um, I think it changes a bit with time and I think that's probably um, confidence but when I first for me when I first started reviewing gigs I did think of them differently to other reviews and I did think that I was trying to be um, a voice for the audience and sum up a little bit of the audience experience mm. and you recognize that, that that's actually absurd you can't do that and I think it's a you know I'm thinking way back when the first few times and you use these trite sort of yeah you still see it in a lot of gig reviews mm. you know you use these sort of trite expressions about we all did this and we reacted to this and yeah. we were on our feet as, as if you're part of something and whilst occasionally that can be convincing because sometimes you can feel like you are part of a special thing can happen in a gig that the audience you know I remember seeing Simon and Garfunkel a few years ago and Art Garfunkel's voice was shot just completely gone and mm. then at one point um, the microphone cut out probably because it had had enough of being treated the way it was by his voice perhaps but the microphone you know the ultimate form of criticism and I was in and in in really close up the front to the show and the mic cut out and he had no idea so he kept going which is understandable he didn't know that it wasn't and so he kept going and he didn't know that he wasn't being heard and the audience recognised what had happened and joined in and sang and of course the song was Bridge Over Troubled Water so it was really quite special right. to have those themes of that song yeah. to have people going you know I'm on your side mm. and I'll guide you there yeah. and so on and I I was really quite moved by that and the thing that was cool was Paul Simon was strumming his guitar and standing back and he saw it mm. and he recognised it and he kind of gave the audience a giant thumbs up and a sort of you know an acknowledgement of you know um, sort of bowed his head at the end and kind of pumped his chest and yeah. he, he, he did all of these gestures to say wow this is actually genuinely quite moving so in that situation that was something where you could say we did this together and you know but usually um, that's not the case at all and you have to write about what you saw and what you heard and what it meant to you I think that's yes it has to be the right way to do it mm. um, uh, there are lots of, um, I suppose there's been a number of occasions where someone has, has, has recommended a writer to me, mm. uh, either um, in a periodical or a newspaper or, or in collections, mm. and I've read, I've opened it and read the first review and it, it said something like, um, you know, John Smith 
uh, who's the director of this film, has also directed Dances with Wolves. And yeah, yeah. And I just... No. Skip down. No. Yeah. Not interested. Mm -hmm. I don't want to read that. Mm. Because there are places where you can already read that. I don't... You've yeah, done, I'm not you know, interested. So when I'm writing reviews, mm. I try to... I mean, because I think it makes sense from a sort of marketing point of view, I suppose. I mean, mm. I try and go... Yeah. Put something up, even a good title, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then, but usually what I say is something like, typically I would say, uh, this isn't a great film, but I think you should see it. Because mm -hmm. that's going to intrigue people. Yeah. Why should I go and see something that's not great? And there are plenty of reasons. And now I'll tell you why. I, yeah. I think yeah, exactly. Those two that, thoughts, yeah. right? Um, and I'm not going to waste a lot of time on subplots in the film and, mm. and so on and, and you know he had a love affair with her and mm. she killed him and stuff like that i i try to cut through to what's this about what, mm -hmm. what's he on about what's mm -hmm. she on about with, with this well describe the plot reviews are a waste of everyone's time aren't they like it, you can do it in, you, exactly like when I, I mean you can do it in two sentences there's, there's at least yeah. one local theater critic who just ruins the plot of every yeah. fucking play well you don't want spoilers see. anyway no no exactly yeah. but there's and he's been doing it for years and i don't know i mean i might might say to you that um, and i mean it is a sort of shameless self-promotion but mm. i wrote um a series of reviews about the BBC production of The Hollow Crown, which was the retelling of the Shakespeare mm. histories. Uh, so that's um, uh, Richard II, Henry the Fourth, one and two, and then Henry the Fifth. Mm. I mean, that cost me to write that mm, mm. because of the reasons that we're talking about. A, I'm not an expert in Shakespeare, mm. and B. You're dealing with a very curious hybrid, mm. Shakespeare on television. Mm. Um, and I wanted whoever might read it to be aware of, of the dynamic of what it means. If you go and see Shakespeare in a theatre, in the round or mm. wherever, mm. that's quite a different thing. Yeah, yeah. To someone and so on. So I said, Sam Mendes is involved and there's a reason for that. Mm not because he knows about Shakespeare, mm. but because he knows about drama and he knows about televisual mm. and visual aspects of it. And the director is this person who's a Shakespeare. Mm. Somehow they've got together and worked out how this stuff needs to work for television. And hallelujah, that's miraculous. Mm. 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 And hey, just while we're on praising, who else but the BBC, and despite everything everyone says about them, who else is ever going to do that for us? Mm. Where are you going to see that? Yeah, totally. Done. Mm. And it was fantastic. Warts and all. I mean, because mm. it had its problems. Mm, mm. Of course, anything that ambitious. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but it cost. Yeah. Those three columns took hours. Yeah. Days. Yeah to write because uh, I'm going to say you know it wasn't a reverential thing but I just had to be so careful about mm. what I actually felt I'd experienced mm, and why yeah. did I feel that way you know what I mean so you had this kind of moment recently that you yeah, described yeah. where you went I'm not going to quite 
be Stephen King or Anthony Burgess <laughs> or one of those, but I mm-hmm. need to pull my finger out a bit more and address this sort of hobbyist, hobbyist writing a little bit more strongly. I think it just, I wanted to be creative. Yeah, you so, wanted, exactly. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask there was, um, do you have do you have much of a plan beyond that at this stage for, for things you want to get into writing that you haven't? Are you thinking about writing some sorts of, I mean... You've you've done this a little bit, but are you gonna do? Are you gonna concentrate more on like little memoir moments from your life? Or is that something that you worry about or think about doing? I do worry about it a bit because I mean I think first of all that's of, a, a, it's, you know, it's you know, a very good question. Yeah, but it's also a very hard question to answer. Um, well, I, I just want to add. No, that, no, I think that, uh, I, I, sorry, Karen. Oh, I was just going to yeah. add that you're kind of addressing it sometimes in some of your reviews and things anyway, as yeah. happens with anyone who 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 writes, is that moments of your life come up in your writing yeah. whether you think you're directly addressing them or not so that's happening but well the last um, blog I did which was, was called in praise of disorder mm. which you liked I liked it and yeah. not just in a Facebook I liked I, I really yeah. liked it I told you I liked it yeah. and I shared it and well I liked it yeah I could tell you did <laughs> because it was very close yes to where where and who I am yeah and, and that came across. Um, but I quite liked the fact that I was able to keep my tongue firmly in my cheek while I was writing it, mm-hmm. so that hopefully only a fool would take it completely literally mm-hmm. and realise that what I was doing was sort of somehow emblematic. Mm-hmm. And the response that I've had from sufferers mm. <laughs> of the <laughs> tells me that I was right. Yeah, uh, and I. I before we started recording, I said to you, I've, I've got a, an old colleague and friend who wrote to me and said, thank God for you writing that. And um, because it was so spot on about, you know, collecting stuff. And, and he said, I have to make a terrible admission. I, I've had this very difficult conversation with my wife where <laughs> I seriously suggested that we move into a bigger house. <laughs> And he wasn't like yeah, it wasn't. It was just like really serious. And I thought, but oh. I love the desperation in that. That that's that, that is the practical solution. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the. Can you imagine? You know, it's about the collection, not where we live. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, well, can you imagine how? You know, when and how did he decide to? You know, lead with that. You know, when did he? How did he drop that in? Well, Mike's a really good guy, and he's um, <laughs> probably the world's leading um, Bowie fan and adherent. Right. And he runs his own Bowie website. And, mm. and, um, wow. He was mentioned on um, the sleeve notes to one of Bowie's albums. As well. Wow. Um, so he's, I mean, this is a serious man. Mm-hmm. And very bright, very talented, mm. and uh, very knowledgeable, wow. obviously. Uh, I hope it wasn't the last Bowie album. No, it was the it was the sort of comeback one from about four or five years ago. That, oh yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, which I think was done in New York. Wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Mike was was frank about, mm. uh, and but it was nice, and I got a lot of people saying you you really you know touched my nerve mm. endings <laughs> what you'd written because it was <laughs> so spot on. And, <laughs> You know, that whole sort of thing about, oh, fuck it, I don't need to have order. Mm. <laughs> Just mm. let, it, let it lie where it is, mm. you know. Um, and, of course, it's not exactly like that. You've got to have some semblance of at least tidiness. But 
Um, I still don't have much of a clue where everything is. I, you know, I find things and think, oh, look at that. But it's, I've only been here a couple of times, but um, I always have to look at what you've got on top of your stereo, yeah. which I, I assume is the... It's the playlist. Just, yeah, the playlist, to yeah. be played or just played or yeah. to be considered to be played. And that, it's always, uh, you know, this sounds sort of... Um, obvious to say but it's always incredibly varied mm. and I always find some interesting things in there that you know names that I know but I haven't seen that album in anyone else's collection and, and you don't even see physical collections like that anymore right. I think. No I've always been quite um, you know what I mean I try not to be uh, too buttoned down in my thinking mm. about about music. But and jazz I'm, is a great love isn't it? Oh more than half what's here is jazz. Mm. Um, so we haven't really talked about that. Where did that come from for you? Like, did you, were you at the same time you were seeing these, uh, you know, blues and, and, and rock and yeah. bands and stuff, were you actually seeing some of I think it transited those? out of them. Yeah, did you get, but did you get yeah. to go and see some of those great players when they were alive? One or two. But when I was, uh, in terms of the period that we've been discussing, mm. no, I mean, I was taken up with what we, you know, I was taken up with rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and its various cousins mm. and relatives. Um, jazz was always in my life because um, my father um, played it. loved jazz music, mm. but from the 30s and 40s mm. Mm. mostly. So dad would play. Yeah, you mentioned Fats Waller. And yeah, so, um, um, and dad knew about the difference between Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah. And favoured mm -hmm. Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought the new thing was not his thing. Mm. Uh, so we didn't get to listen to a lot together. Um, well, I mean, you know, like if I wanted to listen to Brubeck, yeah, I'd, that was I'd, I'd have to go and do it somewhere it, else, yeah. go to a record shop and put it on or something because mm -hmm. they wouldn't. And he was quite intolerant. Um, I mean, I have to be truthful. I mean, he was a magnificent father in, in so many ways, but he was quite things he didn't like or didn't approve of. He, you couldn't get it past him. Yeah, but that's that was the generational situation wasn't it? I've got a memory of, in fact I've written something about this that, that no one's commented on and that's fine but it's one of my favourite things that I've shared was that um, my grandfather was so against the Beatles and Elvis and the whole rock, basically the, mm. you know, the whole rock and roll thing that stemmed from those two acts for people that mm. even in the 80s when I bought my mum an Elvis Presley record for Christmas because she was sort of rediscovering her mm. love of that. And this is my dad's father, not my mum's father. He, um, later on Christmas night, we put the Elvis Presley record on and it was the, the record was actually released for the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. Mm. Uh, it's, um, you know, a greatest hits of sorts. And we put it on and people were having a bit of a dance and... You know, the adults are drinking drinks and the kids are sort of stoked to be up late. Mm. And um, my grandfather went and got his presents and went and sat in the car in the driveway while the Elvis rec record played. My grandmother couldn't drive and he knew he, he knew he couldn't leave the party for good. He didn't want to spoil it and say, come on, we're leaving. But yeah, the old grump yeah. went and sat in the car and I kind of loved that. I sort of loved it about him at the time and I, and I sort of, in part kind of applaud it and, and, and then the other part of me goes you know what a silly old wanker like yeah. what a fool why couldn't he have just gone outside and talked to someone or just pretended it wasn't on but he couldn't 
stand to be seen you know that it was so ingrained that he did not like it Mm. and by that point he was so irrational in his dislike it was just something simply something that he did not like that sounds like that yeah Yeah, that's what i'm that's what i'm assuming and just and and it was manic yeah just sort of like i can't you know it's that it's the it's the opposite side of what you found quite inspiring about um you know um putting your money where your mouth is and conviction isn't it? it's the opposite version of that where you're like oh you you're silly old fool like but you might was, think was you, that, be- you might think you believe in this but you've actually forgotten all about what you really and so he was implacable it never changed no no well that was i mean you know he was he died well probably uh a, quite a few years after that for six or seven years after that or whatever but yeah no it never it never went away. I mean, I, I recorded a conversation with him when I was, which is a bit like what I've started doing now with these, but I recorded a conversation with him for a school project when I was about 15, mm. where we talked about, and I, we had to talk to a grandparent if we had one still alive, and we had to talk to them about an era, and I chose to talk to him about the 60s because, and my dad was really uncomfortable about that. He's like, you've got him in the wrong, you've got him in the wrong area. You need to talk to him about the 40s or the 50s. Yeah. And I said, no, no, I want to, talk to him about sixty because I was obsessed with 60s music and I knew that he didn't understand it at all and I actually wanted to reflect that he didn't understand it I, I think I was a you know I probably thought I was a bit ahead of my time in doing that but anyway so he died shortly after I recorded him and I've still got that tape somewhere and I listened back to it and it's funny how yeah he was completely um, not going to move on his position he wouldn't budge well I'll give you some context and you, you'll enjoy it. My father, seriously, had a moment of enlightenment. Mm. Um, and you will so love this. Mm. Uh, the Royal Variety performance, I think it was probably 1964, by mm. which time I was a young adult, mm. but I was um, still just living at home. Mm. Uh, the Beatles were on it. Mm. This is the red all your jewellery cheap well, sense thing? Well, isn't that, John, Yeah. if you could ever say that there was a very concise moment that completely encapsulated a person's world view. Mm. It was John saying, um, you know, people in the cheap seats, clap your hands and you just rattling your jewellery. Rattling yeah. jewellery. Yeah. With that smile, that little yeah. wry smile. Uh, that should be enshrined somewhere. Mm because it is the perfect John Lennon moment. I don't think there's a better one. Um, however, they did the show, uh, and I think there was some slightly ironic remark that might have been made about the song that Paul was going to do next, mm. which said, you know, we've all got, something like we've got to do a slow one here, or something like that. Mm. And then Paul stepped up and sang, There were birds on a hill, but I never heard them sing. Mm. Um, I can see the look on my father's face now. He, I think he was eating, you know, and he just stopped. And I was looking at him and he went, you know, and he focused on the television and then he looked over at me and saw that I was looking at him mm. and he said, well, I suppose you can sing. <laughs> and I said, well, he can, can't he? And after that, the Beatles were fine. <laughs> I think he might join the fan club. You know what I mean? It was, uh, and it sort of opened up mm. the way. Mm. Uh, it opened up a way in. 
mm. as well, mm. um, because uh, by that time we were starting to, to grow apart a little bit. For, you know, I mean, it's just natural. Mm. Mm. Um, but, but he suddenly, yeah, took a bit more of an interest, and, and I, I suppose you it, it, you got to use the word. Uh, he was tolerant mm. more than giving, if you know what I mean. So. But, Mm-hmm. Uh, before you started talking about your father just then, when we, we mm-hmm. which we got to via my Elvis story, and, and, and actually we were talking about jazz, mm-hmm. but I was about to say to you, the one sort of aspect that I think we haven't really talked about, uh, if you'd like to, is, is um, not so much your kids, but you being a father, mm-hmm. how that came up in your life and how you felt about that. and how that changed things and because that, that happened what shortly after you or sometime after you settled in New Zealand? Um, Josh was born in 1982. Yeah, so you'd been here just a year Yeah, and I was um, 36, mm-hmm. I was into my 30s. So, um, I mean Pat will listen to this but I'm sure she won't, I mean I, you know, I, I'm just sorry but I mean it's, it's hard to know where you build the barriers mm-hmm. on formal things uh, mm. and, and intimacies and mm-hmm. so on. But I think it's reasonable for me to own that for quite a long time having a family wasn't part of my plan. Um, partly because I think I was selfish mm. and partly because I didn't see myself as being a particularly responsible person. I mean I was quite crazy for quite a long time. Eh? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm impressed you use the past tense. Yeah. Well, I could still have that capacity. Yes. Believe, believe people that know me well so know yeah. that I can. Some people will wonder where it comes from, but yeah. I mean, I'm still, I still have the capacity to surprise. Yes. Um, and I've always, I mean, you know, I was always a bit of a risk taker. Should mm-hmm. we say that? Mm. Um, and I, you know, typical child of the sixties. But I don't. I mean, I wasn't a bad lot, Simon. I don't, no. I don't mean it in that way. I mean, I don't think really. I, you know, I feel like I know exactly what you're getting at. Yeah. yeah. But I was a bit crazy. Yeah. Um, well, that's the, usually the best kinds of people have something of that in them. So, um, anyway, we, we decided that we would like to have a family. Um, and I mean, and to, uh, we'll come back, but to cut mm. to Endgame, we had mm. two children. Mm. I've got a daughter called Hannah, mm. um, who was born in 1987. Um, and then the clinicians that play such a big part in our lives told us that <coughs> I'd have to tie the knot. And I've got a musical story to tell you, which is fabulous <laughs> about that. Mm. But they said, given what happened during the second confinement, it's probably not a great idea mm-hmm. to have a third. Um, and that was a matter of regret. Because I wish we'd started a family earlier. So I think that sort of answers your mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. I embraced fatherhood. Um, I got very pompous about about it with friends and uh, um, you, will you come to such and such and Neil Young's playing at the stadium oh no I've got to stay home and look after I said what do you mean you've got to stay home and look after the kids you mean you're staying home to look after the kids mm. you don't got to do anything they're your kids look after them you know so I sort of I was quite staunch about mm. about mm. the reasons and the fact that 
I didn't say to people, I can't come to your dinner party because I've got a lot, you know what I mean? Mm. I mm. never did that, mm. and I never would. Mm. I love my, my kids, and um, they've, um, I, I think they've returned that. Um, Josh is in Amsterdam, and I think he's going to come home soon. I think he's had enough. Hannah's here in Wellington. She's um, working as a veterinary nurse, which I'm pleased about. Um, it's hard work being parents. Um, cautionary note for anyone that's thinking about it. What don't you like uh, about any stage of parenting? The worst thing about being a parent is being awake at three o'clock on a Sunday morning waiting for the key to turn in the lock. <laughs> you will never be more anxious than that moment. Let me tell you. And you hear every little sound that the house makes. <laughs> Could that be the scrape of a foot staggering down the path? And uh, all of those things. Mm, mm. And you never quite stop being a parent, ever. Mm. Doesn't matter. Getting uh, married to Pat in that most famous of places that. You uh, the registry office at the top of the King's Road <laughs> where all the football players and Mick Jagger mm. got married. Mm. Sitting there waiting for the uh, celebrant to... and I'm suddenly feeling this hand on my shoulder and it's my mother brushing, brushing a bit of random dandruff off. <laughs> Mum! <laughs> 28 years old. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I... I and clearly you, uh, from what you have to say about Oscar, you, you're completely besotted with him. He's good fun, yeah. But you love him. Yeah, of course. Mm. Yeah. No, great, he's... Yeah. he's, he's uh, and such a great name. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he's a handful in the best kind of way, I think. You know, like he's, he's um, certainly got personality and I think that's pretty great you he's know, got, got musical character. opinions on yeah he does he does although he's <laughs> he's he's starting to kind of um, really embrace just the silly naff kids music now more than the yeah. and that's okay you know I don't have a problem with that but um, but then every now and then he surprises me um, with I, I was playing some records down at the pub the other week and he came down with his mum to watch and I I know one or two of the songs that he really likes and has responded to, so I put them on, and so I played. It's the, and it's the oddest choice, I think, but I played Stevie Wonder's "Part Time Lover," and he just jumped up and started dancing. Which yeah. I th and the bar staff were walking past and going, "You know, who's this nut of a kid? He's clearly, clearly yours." Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a neat moment. So yeah, he's he's good fun. He's sure. good fun. Um, I'm sure he's going to give us lots of issues, lots of you know. The things you're talking about, key at waiting for the key in the door and all of those sorts of things. Well, that's, but that's yeah, like a little metaphor all, for exactly. all it's of a, the... It's all... It'll be a phone call from the school yeah. or possibly yeah. from the back of a police car. Yeah, I'm um, sure I'm sure there'll I mean, be all of yeah. that. But no, he, he's, he's great and I, I feel... Um, I haven't really talked about it with anyone, but I've, apart, well, apart from Katie, but I feel um, really, um, I guess, honoured to be able to spend as much time with him at, at this point in his life as, a, as I do. I know it's not, it's not actually that strange these days 
for dads to to be at home with the kids. No, but no. Um, yeah, I was the principal caregiver. For yeah, them. yeah, yeah. It's 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 it, uh, you know, it, and and maybe there was a time when it was a little bit more strange. Probably when you were doing it, it was strange isn't the word, but to me, but it probably mm. was to other people at that time. It was a bit less con- conventional. Now it's um, quite common, I feel. But anyway, it's 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 it is a real privilege. It's, it's well, the division of duties and so on is you just much more democratic these yeah, days. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. the great thing is that you just find the way that it's going to work. And, um, and nothing, I don't think, in that in that realm works one hundred percent all the time. So you just find the you just find the way that works the best for you. Man, no one's written the book. No, nah. no one. No, nah. so you just do it the best it's you a can. Completely empirical process. Mm. Mm. Suck it and see. Mm. But he's he is good fun. He is good fun. Um, what's left for us to talk about that we haven't covered? What do we need to? What do what What do you wish I'd asked you about? Um, I'll put a little cue list. Yeah, there. I, I don't know. I can't. No, I reckon we've. Oh, I know what I have. Well, I haven't asked you about. You, you've actually given me a note about Hendrix. Did Did you want to get into something about Hendrix in particular? Well, only in I'm, the sense that. Did you see him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did. I, I did write a blog about it. I saw him on three occasions. I've remembered um, when when I wrote the blog about going to see um, Jimi Hendrix. I, I put a footnote on it saying, you know, the, the standard cliche is that if you can remember the sixties, you you weren't there. Mm. And, and I said that's certainly true. So, mm. for the benefit of uh, truthfulness, I have to say that I've had to actually research some of this because I want to make sure my recollection is okay and I've also made Skype phone calls to mm. people that are still here mm. that, uh, you know because it, it was a bit blurry mm. you know mm. um, so I think the first time I, I saw Jimi Hendrix play was at a, a, a place called the Bag of Nails it's quite a famous gig in Kingley Street in Soho, mm. um, and it was one of those sorts of pub club places that had a resident DJ. It was called Big Al. Mm. So one of the reasons I could remember. <laughs> um, uh, but they got you know, regular. It was quite a sizable place. So we we went there to see to see Jimi Hendrix play. I had no idea who I was going to see. Mm. Uh, and I say in the blog, I actually reached across some people and said, who's this, you know, who, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> and then, um, to, um, it's just cut to, to the end of it. Um, I, you know, I think, again, people claim too much. Mm. You know what I mean? We didn't know that we were seeing Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, you are seeing a guy called Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Um, but there were clues. And the people that were in the room, if mm. you knew who was who, mm. were the clues. So, you know, Jimmy Page was there, Jeff Beck was there, Chaz Chandler was there. there were a lot of people. Now, you knew this at the time because you could yeah, recognise yeah, yeah, them? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They, these people... Yeah, they were a big deal already. Yeah, and I think you asked just to go back. Sorry, this is mm. horribly fragmented, but it will make sense. And you mm. said, is there something... I would refer to the 60s or that part of the 60s as the time of accessible genius. Mm-hmm. 
that's what I don't think has ever been truly understood and recognised about what was happening. Things were breaking open fast. Okay? Mm. So, I could go and see Hendrix on Friday night, and on Saturday afternoon I could go and watch George Best. And then if I was real lucky, I'd turn the TV on, and I'd see Muhammad Ali. Mm. Right? Next day I might walk down to the Courthold and see an exhibition by David Hockney. <laughs> I'm you know what I mean? Mm, mm. Mm. It was extraordinary. Mm. Um, you turn the TV on sometimes and there'd be a debate between uh, Norman Mailer and Marshall McLuhan. Mm. Say. But the thing is, that's you know, I I understand and appreciate all of that. But playing um, devil's advocate slightly for a minute, someone yeah. someone listening to that might say, yes, but we could see, you know, whoever on it, we could see, you know, maybe not living in New Zealand, but well, of course yeah. now people would argue that they can experience it through their phone or their computer anyway. But say in America, people might say that they could see. Wilco one night, Beck the next night, go and see the latest, you know. They could, but film. And are you saying that those experiences for them aren't as important as no, that no, one not, for no, you? No, I'm not saying that, and it would be uh, wrong mm. and arrogant to say that. But I mean, I get what you're getting at, and but, believe, believe me, it blows my mind hearing yeah. that list of people. But you know, you've got to appreciate the, I mean, I mean it, this is complex but it sort of mm, seems, I'm just trying to draw you it, it's informed yeah. by what happened at the conclusion of World War Two. Mm -hmm. the abandonment of those pre-war standards not just culturally but economically um, and the availability through different media marketing forms and, and the disposal of information, mm. uh, as I said, accessible genius. Um, so, you know, how many people went to see Andres Segovia play his concert in, in Madrid in 1941? How many people went and saw uh, uh, the Hot Club de Paris playing in Paris mm. in, in 1938. Not many, mm. right? And how many people knew about it? In 1964, our generation, uh, and I'm not claiming anything, I'm not, mm -hmm. I don't have proprietary rights over this. Mm -hmm. I, I was born in 1946, mm -hmm. I've got no choice in the matter. Yeah. Um, but that generation said and bear in mind, there was a third as many again of us as there was in the previous generation. All the soldiers came home and had families, there were a lot of us. Mm. So we were very competitive. Mm. If you wanted to get a good place in a grammar school or get a good job, there were lots of jobs and lots of people, but you, you had to fight for them and mm. you had to be good. Mm. You know, so there, there was a little bit of um, possibly elitism at work. Uh, but 
the, the, the social and cultural dynamic was different. We weren't going to high street tailors for our suits. Mm. And we weren't going to the guy, uh, to the guy that uh, sold the contraceptives for, for our haircuts. That's, we didn't do that. We went up the West End or to a Jewish tailor down Petticoat Lane. And we got a bolt of mohair cloth and we took it to a tailor and we got measured and we had it made. Our shoes were from rails and they were designed, mm. you see. And we, we didn't want brill cream and bullshit shirts mm. uh, and suits and things. We didn't want that. We wanted strong coffee, lots of alcohol, cars, and good times. We were the children of the people who'd suffered and we weren't going to wear that. I'm telling you that. And it got discussed to by, you know, kids, you know, we were, we were just typical kids, but you know, we were quite bright. Mm. We, we, we did talk about stuff. Um, and the way that we built relationships, I believe, was, was quite different. I'm still in touch with a lot of people that I had as friends when I was 18. We still talk to each other. So, you know, when you talk about what's the difference, what's the difference between Hendrix and Wilco, I'd say, well, uh, and I, I guess this is going to sound bad, but I can't, I, can't, so I can't really put it any other way. Hendrix was the template. Well, I was going to say, you wouldn't have... Arguably, you wouldn't have Wilco and and so many other yeah. bands without people like. But, but that's not a value judgment. No, no. That, yeah. the, the, and I'm I'm just sort of arguing. I'm arguing a point I don't actually really yeah. believe here. I'm I'm presenting something that that I think some people get frustrated with the idea that the cultural experience that you're describing and you've you've supplied extra context to it, but. Mm now but the 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 idea that you could see george best and hendrix in a weekend mm. david hockney um, muhammad ali mm. um I, what i'm saying is people could come up with something that is their equivalent it's okay and they that's fine and mm. they should feel comfortable in that but some mm. of them might argue that there's a cultural weight that 40 and 50 years has given to what you're talking about that in a culture that now moves so much faster and recycles and refreshes yes, so much quicker, they'll never have that opportunity to say that. No, I, um, I And agree. have it yeah. mean the same thing. And so their cultural experience, the value of it, has been stripped a little by mm. this extra um, sort of weight that has been afforded to... But then what you're saying is that was the beginning of... It provided the propulsion. Yeah, exactly. So, so I totally understand to, that. Toward it. And I don't, but as I said earlier, you know, too much is claimed yeah. by my generation yeah, for, yeah, how, yeah. for how knowledgeable or prescient they were about that. And I, mm. and I eschew that completely because, mm -hmm. you know, we, we weren't stupid and, mm. and, and we knew, uh, if you re go back and read the blog uh, about going to see Hendrix, I said, mm. we, I just said, we just knew that we'd seen something, but we didn't know what. Mm. I didn't know what the hell it was, but I'd seen this guy and I saw the fretwork. And I was looking at all of the other musos, looking at their shoes, mm. and I was thinking, wow, what, what? And 
the you know one thing that's never changed a little coterie of, of, of educated and knowledgeable people standing at the foot of the, mm. of, the of, of, of the master who mm. wait for the thing to finish and then they burst into knowledgeable applause mm. um, they were all there they knew what was going on mm. uh, and dug it and mm. stuff but we were all uh, like he played Johnny B. Good mm. Mm. Uh, and in, in the blog well, I said, didn't, I said, he didn't so much play it as reinvent it didn't he too well it was a vehicle for yeah, yeah for uh, exactly. and I talk about he pulled it to pieces and put it back together um, how he, he sent the feedback around the room like a lasso and mm. then reeled it back in mm. uh, and uh, uh, my mind's gone the, the drummer um, Mitch Mitchell Mitch um, ends the whole thing with a thwack on the hi-hat um, mm. you know and I'm sort of like, what the hell was that? Mm. Is that it? And what was it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes in the killing floor, and yeah, uh, and you st- um, and you start to sort of get it. So, what did you think? Okay, well, that's interesting. What did you mm. think about Hendrix's knowledge of and appropriation and representation? You know, representation mm. of and recontextualization of the blues. Yeah. Versus. Fleetwood Mac, Steam Packet, Muddy Waters. Muddy, and, yeah. and what What do you think Hendrix did that that made it resonate or, or in a different way? And did it mean more to you to see? Was it closer to Muddy and How the yeah. Wolf and? Uh, you, you could sort of infer uh, the connections, mm. but the, that first time, probably uh, the second time, which was um, at a, at a Another similar venue called the Scottish St James, which is quite a famous place. Stones used to play here. Mm. Um, maybe there was a deeper impression. The third time I saw him, I think, was at a place called Middle Earth in Covent Garden. By which time um, he was inter- nationally. I mean, that you know, Woodstock and, and Monterey and mm. all that stuff had happened. Um, I think what I thought about Jimmy at that point was that he was special and unique, and he wasn't blues. I don't think he was. No. I, 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 I sort of think I had a conscious, but the blues is an informer in, in this. It's mm, informing mm. what he does. Mm. Um, and I think that the, the real answer to that question is, is I'm convinced through listening to the bootleg stuff and the unauthorised releases which were made close to the time that he died, mm. that he was headed probably in a similar direction to John McLaughlin and mm-hmm. I think he was moving into abstraction yeah, uh, m- more and more so and experimental music and j- um, freeform jazz. Yeah, I was going to say even the early um, things that Carlos Santana were doing seemed to pick up a bit from yeah. Hendrix and, and vice versa he uh, could have And I'm pretty sure had that. he fallen in with, with an impresario or someone that was sympathetic uh, and, and knowledgeable about how that might be. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's where he would have gone and it's, it is one of the world's huge tragedies that, mm-hmm. he was, that was never to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, I mean, you know, you do, you, we're going to lapse into cliché, but um, you know, it was tragic. I was very upset yeah. when the two people uh, that I miss oh, the most. John Lennon second or not? No, Peter Cook. Ah, 
Yeah. I was going to, we'll talk about that, but I was going to yeah. ask you just before, when you were talking about um, John Lennon with the Red All Your Jewelry, mm. I was going to say, were you, you, you know, you would remember well when he died and, and how, how yeah. did you feel about that? Was that an enormous... I was awake for 36 hours. On the back of that, because yeah. of that. Yeah. Talking to people, yeah, friends, getting music, sharing the news, grieving together. It's yeah. not me for six. Wow, because I can only very vaguely remember it. I was very young, but I can remember my dad mm. having some reaction to it. Yeah. Although I don't know that it I was... couldn't sleep. I was just really upset. Yeah, um, but I was. I mean, I, it, that's part of my personality, and I can't. I mean, I've got a. You're interviewing me, and I. I can't feign at, at being something that I'm not. I, I can get quite emotional about yeah. things that matter to me. That's great. That's, uh, that's arguably why I'm talking to you. Yeah. Um, um, what? When did Peter Cook die? Um, I can't remember. I was in England when he died, and it was about the time that they captured um, Hussein. So, I mm. think. So, so somewhere around two thousand and something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember it, but I can't recall the date right now. But yeah. so, what did he? What I imagine he was a pretty important person for you. Yeah, he was um, a pretty the, crucial informer of your humour as well as yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he was just a stone cold genius. Yes, first of all. Yes, um, like you know, an original voice mm. uh, that comes along. Um, very similar in his outlook um, to, um, was it Tony uh, Wilson, the chap that started yep. up Factory Book? Yep. Yeah. Um, they, they were f completely uncontainable, completely uncontainable free spirits. Yeah. Peter would only ever phone you, I imagine, if you wanted something. You'd always have to phone Peter. Yeah. I, I just imagine that. that yeah, was, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a guy who yeah. people rang up and tried to find he didn't bother um, but through his own various p personas and through private eye magazine um, just to give the lie to my radical status I mean if you yeah. want to change things incrementally from within that's how you do it yeah you have to have critical voices yeah that understand what the targets are and are able to l effectively launch a series of weapons yeah, yeah, yeah. into the public consciousness about how those public monuments need to be carried off mm -hmm. and, um, and that was his gift and completely even-handed. I would have been a judge if it wasn't for the Latin, <laughs> right? So, you know, he's having a go at the establishment, but yeah. he could just as easily, you know, through his flat cap characters, mm. Mm. have a crack at the working class and the trade mm. unions and stuff. Mm. It didn't matter to him if it seemed something that was worthy of... That's a common thing in, in, in a lot of English humour, isn't it, is that, you know, the class thing is so, particularly around the time these guys, these guys grew up with it yeah. much more heavily, but so the playing with the class thing and mocking essentially both sides of it is, is prevalent in a lot of British humour. I mean, the Monty Python, mm. who obviously worshipped Cook, yeah, for sure. uh, among others, you know, yeah. and, and Peter Sellers yeah. did it a little bit too, although, um, yeah, 
Yes, Peter Sellers was a very astute observer. Mm. Um, although it was, I mean, the thing, there's an odd thing. I once saw uh, a television program where uh, two of the guests were Spike Milligan and Jerry Lewis. Mm -hmm. Now, quite apart from the massive differences in time, terms of the style of mm. humour, because it does seem to me that American humour generally requires a victim, mm -hmm. whereas English humour is very situational. What struck me about the thing was the difference between, despite the huge success of both men, the fact that Lewis was a professional comedian, Spike wasn't. Mm. He actually wasn't. Mm. I mean, he did it for a living, but that's not... Mm. Spike was always Spike, whatever happened. And I think Peter Cook was quite a lot like that. Mm. He was always Peter Cook. And whatever guys or whatever he was doing, um, it, it seemed to me that what he was expressing was something fundamentally English. Mm. Uh, and Peter Sellers too, although different yeah. in that... Maybe. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong idea. They, were, they weren't amateurs in terms no, of no, their no, presentation. No, no. But no, what I'm what saying is that I don't think that Cook, uh, and I don't know, I mean, I stand to be corrected, someone who's an expert on the subject, I don't know whether or not he sort of set out in that obvious sense to... Uh, I saw him interviewed once on, <laughs> on a chat show. I'll try and give you an idea. Uh, it might have been someone like Michael Aspel or... Parkinson or something. Or Parkinson. Um, and he'd just been in, the, you know, he did the Rod Stewart, Eric Clapton thing. He went over to the States, <laughs> it was in some mm. dreadful sitcom, and people would talk patronisingly to him. You know, people like Clive James would sort of, mm. oh, terrible waste of talent, why did you do that? You know, and um, Peter couldn't care less about what they thought. Mm. And um, anyway, I think he'd just come back from the States and he was on this show. And they did, they did the big intro, and he ca he came on to music and stuff, and he was an incredibly languid, sort of elegant guy, you know. He's uh, walked on, and uh, whoever it was, sort of said to him, "How are you?" That's all he said. So how are you? And, Pete, and Cook said, "Oh, it's a bit fisherman's." And the host. I think it might have been Parky, made the mistake of saying, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, it's a bit fisherman's out there. He said, what do you mean it's a bit fisherman's? He said, well, it's the new backslang. It's fisherman's backslang. And it's raining. And I got wet. So it's fisherman's net wet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, he said, and he said, and what's more, Parky, it's made me feel very fisherman's indeed. And he said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I don't feel well as a result of becoming wet, so I'm crook, I'm fisherman's hook, crook. And by... <laughs> This time the penny was beginning to drop. Mm. He'd been had on toast mm. by him mm. for no reason other than the fact that Peter deemed that 
he was a worthy subject to have mm. on toast in mm. front of millions of people. Mm. So mm. that's the guy, that's what he did. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's why we loved him. Mm. You know, well, some people didn't, of course, I mean, obviously, but I, I just... Bedazzled is one of the funniest films oh, yeah, it's great. you'll ever see. Yeah. Was it, it was, I couldn't believe they did that remake of it, which was ghastly. But Brendan Fraser, yeah. Yeah, but the, origi the original film is... And they do the most brilliant send-up of um, sort of Top of the Pops, Ready, Steady, Go. Yes. Um, the soundtrack was so great too for yeah. Bedazzled, and that was kind of um, Dudley Moore's great gift to that duo too, wasn't it? That it yeah. He could be funny, he could be a straight man, but he also had the musical chops to do things for them in that capacity. Yeah, well, that was another very uneasy relationship. Yeah, yeah. There's a great scene in that where he's, they're walking down the street and there's a guy selling newspapers and he's got the little hoarding thing in front of him with the headline on it. And it says, um, pop stars and drugs, sex orgy, and Peter Cook goes over to it and he stands and covers it up and he's got a pen. And he just puts an E on the end of pop. And he does that insane laugh and walks off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Ronnie um, Barker's a guy I miss. Very funny fellow. I think I I I I don't know if the world moves too f um, fast now f for his type of humour, or if actually it would be great for his type of humour. I think like he's so word based that mm. he would have a f be having a field day with <laughs> the way we've brutalised <laughs> language and 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 the way we present things, I think he would have a lot of fun with that. Well, he did what he could at the time, and, um, yeah. you know... Well, uh, what's great is the best sort of... You look at the scripts and the and the gags, like particularly the two Ronnie's gags, yeah. the one-liners and the, the dialogues, and I feel like, uh, you know, okay, obviously there's a few dated references and things like that, but really they kind of stand up because it's about language more than it's about situations. Yeah. So, like, the things like the, you know, the Four Candles... Thing like okay, someone watching that skit might think that this, you know the shot and and so forth is a little str strange way to frame a joke. But if you listen to just the audio of it, mm. it doesn't matter who you are and how old you are. Past a point, you get what it's about because it's about the language, and and I think a lot of their stuff. But that works like that. Serendipity thing comes in that. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. How luck works, but getting Ronnie Corbett as his foil. Mm. I mean, he was another bona fide genius, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. um, did you hear that story he told about um, when he was in the army? Um, he uh, he was stationed on Gibraltar, mm. and there's a legend um, with the Barbary Apes, which is very similar to the one with, about the ravens at the Tower of London, which is that if the population diminishes, some terrible thing will happen. Um, and the station commander had noticed that, or had been told, that the Barbary Ape population was dwindling. And so the British Army's response to that was to find all of the shortest people they could and put them in. <laughs> put them into monkey suits. Now, whether or not this was apocryphal, I, I suspect it strongly it was, but anyway, he was asked and and did and and did that lead to anything? And he said yes. He said um, 
when Stanley Kubrick was um, making 2001, he wanted me to be the ape that threw the threw, threw held the, up the bone, and, and he said I was interviewed for the role. Mm. Kept a straight face. <laughs> I suspect that he was having everyone. Mm. Mm. Also, a very funny guy. Yeah, 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 for sure. And the perfect four for Ronnie. Yeah, Barker. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're a, a great comedy duo. Mm. And I, I, well, I don't know enough about it, but I feel like there wasn't sort of tremendous acrimony there. I feel like they were, they were, no, the, they were good the buddies. Buddies, they were the yeah, good yeah. match that was that lined up well. Which isn't. Which case. doesn't seem to generally be the case. No, Cook and Moore was. was well, honest. that's that thing again, isn't it? As as they're resenting in each other what the other one has. A little bit. Possibly. I mean, once again, though, you know, even though he was even-handed, I mean, Cook was an upper middle class. I mean, he was sort of like Stephen Fry. Yes. Type of. Yeah. And Cook uh, Moore was from Dagenham. Yeah. Right. So. Bright boy made good. Yeah. Got a university education, could play the piano a bit, you know. Yeah. And, um, but they, uh, once again, the genius of the thing was they allowed that to come out. Yes. In, in I say you watch those skits now and you can see uh, a quite open hostility there. You can see, um, yeah. you know, that, because Dudley would I'll break character so much more yeah. than, um, than Peter, you can see frustrations around that as well as them playing that for humour. Yeah. And you could also see when Peter Cook would take the joke a little bit too far when it was to do with height and stuff, when he yeah. was pat- when he was physically patronising him, and um, you could see him delighting in Dudley Moore's frustration and, and even sort of disgust with it. So yeah, they they kind of they pushed that quite heavily, I thought, and then obviously the Derek and Clive stuff too. But well, that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, you know because there's been a lot of excited and excitable commentary on the Derek and Clive episode but uh, I would suggest that people think about maybe the writing of um, David Mamet and uh, using expletives mm. in a sort of almost lyrical uh, combu- you know combustible way mm. I think is a legitimate tool mm. and you, you, you very much as a listener you've got to work out whether or not you think it's a valid expression of um, some artistic endeavour or not. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever really quite understood the the point or whether there is no point to Derek and Clive. I've never quite... Oh, there's, there's a lot of nihilism. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. But I don't know that because of, because of how it arrived to me in my lifetime yeah. um, as a thing people had already experienced and passed down, it's a bit like Cheech and Chong and things like that. Yeah. The, the, some comedy things require their original context, yeah. and and I feel that that's the case. I mean, Cheech and Chong, I don't care about that. There's, there's, you know, they might have been trailblazers, pardon the pun, for a type of stoner comedy, but but then there's stoner comedy ever since that riffs on that, and that's sort of all that's kind of required. You can historically go back and watch what they do and and decide that you like some of it or whatever, but it's never really meant a lot to me. And I feel that, and I feel this, for, for slightly different reasons, I feel the same thing about Derek and Clive. You know, mm. I, I, I get the nihilistic uh, sort of uh, riffing, and I get, I get the sort of anti-comedy thing that they're doing, but I, w- I would rather hear 
foul words used cleverly rather than just frequently. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. It's not anything. Particularly that because yeah. the two guys behind Derek and Clive, you got to see them do some, you know, yeah. so much other wonderful stuff. Yeah, I get that it's great that they did that too, but it's just not really for me. Well, it's a sort of part of the canon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and but I don't, uh, you know, I don't have any special. But now that we've talked about it, I'm going to go home and subject myself to it again and go, you know, either go, no, definitively, I don't like that, or, wow, I've actually found something in it to appreciate now. Because I can remember being so let down the first time I listened through to a Derek and Clive record and went, I have been recommended this by so many people. I know who these guys are. I've seen them do their other things, including, you know, straight like film acting and working separately and Dudley Moore's music. I knew a lot about them. And then when I heard that, I went, the fuck was that about yeah which is a valid response obviously but i didn't do it in a in a, in a good way I and mean, that was a waste of my time well i mean i think just the genre if that's the right word or the subgenre, as i said it's legitimate yes and plenty of um uh playwrights and authors yeah. have, have, have experimented sure. with it but I suppose when you hear it, and it's obviously gratuitous. I wrote a film, yes. a, a film review of an absolutely vile film that I saw called Harry Brown um, with Michael Caine, mm. which was sort of like Death Wish brought up to date. Um, and it's just the most foul, disgusting, vile, hopeless piece of trash that you could ever hope to spend an hour and a half watching. Mm. And when I was writing about it, I said... And the other thing about it is that, that, that there's, a, there's a section of dialogue which now, which contains the now um, arbitrary use of the word cunt on at least seven or eight occasions. And I said, and as soon as you hear it, you know it's mm. trash. Mm. It's trash. It's in there because Richie and you know mm. these other people have, have done it already. Mm, mm. Uh, and these people say, well, we've got to have a passage of dialogue where... Someone, yeah. someone else a cunt eight times, you know. And yeah, whereas David Mamet, like you go back to yeah. Glengarry Glen Ross, and, and when they use the word cunt in that, which which I'm pretty sure is only once, yeah, or you know maybe it's mm. it's 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 fantastic because they've said the word fuck so yeah. many times, and some word is required to take it up a level. It. Well, I mean, and, those are, and those, it works in that yeah. context as being the one word that's more powerful than that. Those are directorial and possibly production decisions mm. that, that, that someone needs to make. I can cite you uh, an occasion which was in an ordinary film, but one of the most powerful f- moments in film. Mm. Um, Kate Blanchett was in a movie about an Irish journalist. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the one. Veronica Guerin. Guerin. Yeah, and yeah. she confronts these terrible men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they know who she is. Mm-hmm. And I think she's aware of the fact that they've already tried to kill her. Mm-hmm. And she drives to yeah, where they are, gets out of the car, and then berates them, whatever. And this really brutish guy is just watching her and listening. He's just not saying anything. And he just walks up to her and smashes her in the stomach with his fist and just says, cunt. It's one of the most shocking things. Mm. I, seriously. I was like, well, I'm not talking. 
ashen. ashen. Yeah, you've brought that all back for me. I, did, I have seen that film, and I thought, not, it, uh, I thought it was an okay film. Yeah, it's not a great film, but no, that it's moment. A, it's an interesting enough story, but you're right. It's a good performance because she gives good performances. But that all moment, that. yeah. Like, and you've brought that moment back for me just now. Yeah. I, I, and I can recall, that, you know, thinking about it at the time, it's a particularly brutal so it, it, um, scene. There's a, a, a movie. Um, uh, with Steve Martin and uh, called and uh, uh, you know it's called Grand Canyon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one around the sort of um, that's to do with AIDS, isn't it? The no, no. It's oh. where it's it's about saving people's you a, a, a subjective intervention on the life of another oh, person. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You can't save the world, but yes. you you can make things better yeah. for for one or two people yeah. if you try hard. Yeah. That, that type of message. I've seen that, yeah. Um, there's a moment, and Steve Martin is, uh, plays the role of the director of slash films. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's coming out of the studio with, um, what's his name that was in uh, a, fish, a Fish Called Wonder, the American comedian. Oh, movie. Kevin Klein? Yeah. I think he's coming out of the studio with him. Mm. Um, and he gets mugged. Guy comes up to him and says, Give me a watch. And he panics. He does what you and I would do. He mm. says, don't hurt me. And he's got like a Ferrari or something. And he says, take the keys to my car. Mm. And he shoots him. And he says, I want your fucking car. I want your fucking watch. But the way the sound editing was done, and that it was like hugely personal. Mm. I mean, you really got the full weight of yeah. that sort of violence. I mean, that was like you know, same with the Veronica. Normally, it's just like Simon Templar or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. the saint. They're all going like they're biffing each other, and and they get up and they won't yeah. put their hand through their hair, and it's all over, and no one's really hurt. Um, we're going to run out of tape in a minute. Okay. Uh, which I'm fine with and, yeah. but is there anything that you want to get out before we do which is going to be completely out of context because I'm putting it on the spot but if we've, we've, right. we've probably got five minutes strangest gig I ever did yeah because okay. we'll put it some, we'll put it back in somewhere else when I was at Tapapa yeah uh, and you can imagine it's stuffed full of talented people yes we had a pickup band which was called the Rosso Rook Experience yeah it's named after one of the uh, uh, sort of uh, curators and uh, we got to play at uh, various to papa functions but elsewhere we were asked to go uh, they were releasing some skinks or something like that on mm. Simon's Island mm. and they well, the, the great and the good that were present asked if the Rosso Rook experience would go and play at, on, some, at the on, island on, on Simon's Island yeah. so it's I have to say I'm probably quite unique I'm one of the few musicians um, in the world that's ever uh, had to plug into a generator because <laughs> the bloody thing yeah <laughs> um, uh, one of our singers a young woman called Poor I Can she was doing um, the Pretender song Brass yeah. in Pocket yeah you know Poor I? yeah yeah a little bit yeah, yeah. yeah she was on and she was doing Brass in Pocket and it just stopped everything just stopped and we had to go and crank up the generator <laughs> <laughs> so, plug in and get going I've, I've been at a wedding where that's happened but it, it wasn't a band it was just a um, you know, just a jukebox or 
DJ or something like that. Anyway, it, it's a very that. specific yeah. memory because, <laughs> well, they were happy times we, and the, the band was fabulous. We had yeah. some really good musicians. We, um, I played a, a gig, y- your story has just made me think, I played a gig once with this Irish band on the back of a truck in a field in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So we were uh, plugged into a generator, I think, mm-hmm. for that because, um, and it was it was a cycle race. It was a strange gig. It was a cycle race where they go over the Rumatakas, yeah. and then they have a rest. And when they had the rest and they set up camp, they booked this band to play. And so we played for a bunch of like knackered cyclists who all just sort of were, were asleep on the grass, mm. and. <laughs> We were playing on the back of a flat deck truck, and I always remember that. And it was, it was, you know, it was a gig, and we got paid, but it was completely unrewarding beyond that. <laughs> it was just, stu- it, it just, it seemed to it's me like that the magical mystery. Too. Well, it seemed to me that you know, yes, if it was part of some kind of artistic folly, it would have been, you know, if, if it could have been contextualised in that, it would have been quite funny. But it just seemed like a giant waste of time beyond uh, getting paid for the night. Right. <laughs> well, it was yours, and you can own it. I have to. Yeah. <laughs>